This is another edition of the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I am Kyle Bird, your host, and uh, I am joined by... Matt Parmley. And you are my co-host, usually, right? Correct? That Yeah, okay. that's... Sure. <laughs> All right. We have somebody... We have somebody with us that every time he comes on, it's like there's like a cloud of doom. Like every time he's it's come really on, about anything good. Yeah, like the one episode we did a in a memorial thing for Bono who passed away, and then like the Shin Godzilla politics episode, and that was you know. So without further ado, say hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Chris also uh, composed that lovely intro music you hear every every time. He did do that and a lot of other stuff, and he like fixes our audio at g-fest because we're idiots yes so, yeah you got me on for depressing episodes and for the g-fest recap episode uh we talked about star year. wars yeah. that wasn't yeah that yeah, wasn't yeah. That. no that that's fair yeah they did star wars and i think and uh battle from outer space so yeah, there were was, a couple yeah, that yeah. weren't depressing yeah that's not but so now bad. star wars is depressing so well <laughs> yes <laughs> i went full circle real fast <laughs> Yep. I do. Uh, it's you know with this episode, like it's weird that today, unbeknownst to us, that the uh, Doomsday Clock was moved a hundred seconds to midnight. And that was not planned. Like we had planned to do this like two weeks ago on the twenty third, and lo and behold, this afternoon they're like, "Hey, by the way, we're a uh, hundred seconds away from everybody dying." So that's cool. So Everything. yeah, well, the Doomsday Clock is a literal clock, kind of that is moved. Uh, basically measuring uh, how likely it is that nuclear war <laughs> will break out. Uh, right now, it is the closest it's been since... Is it since the Cuban Missile Crisis? The, the thing that I saw was 1953, but yeah, I mean, it, it, does the, it really matter? Yeah, we're, <laughs> yes. It's, it's, we're very close. Uh, now, we, we, this was an, an episode we've been talking about probably for like years now of like, oh, you know, one day these are two films that would be a, a fun pairing and, and whatnot. Uh, but then um, a weird thing happened in that, uh, so once, I guess November, December are kind of like, we kind of take the holiday season off and we release things that are saved up and uh, we kind of go on like a little hiatus and Matt and I were like, okay, well, what what should we... Like, where do we want to, like, kick off 2020? And that was around the same time that uh, all this stuff with Iran was happening, and World War Three was being memed, like, to hell and back, which I guess has died <laughs> off since we're... There, I guess... are, there are several World War Three Facebook meme groups that are still in existence. So I don't know if it's died <laughs> off or not, but people are like... like Iran happened what two a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and now people are like, "Yeah, it's fine." Yeah. It's, so what, when it. war was not declared, I think everyone kind of calmed down. But that's when we were like, "Hey, World War Three is uh, it's in right now. All the cool kids uh, are talking about World War Three. So let's let's finally do this." Um, and then we planned on today, and then like, yeah, this morning the news was like, uh, "Doomsday clock is a hundred seconds to midnight," and we we're like, "Oh, okay." Um, relevant uh so yes we are we're getting apocalyptic uh up in here uh and we're going to talk about two disaster films by toho we have the last war 1961's the last war and prophecies of nostradamus 1974 uh, which is uh, a banned film uh, but if you are savvy enough uh, you can find it 
Um, we'll get called into, the internet. Yes, <laughs> I, I think some of your listeners may have heard it. You know, it, it, you can get things there in you know less than legal ways. Chris, so. do you understand how many people message us like via Twitter or like just on our Facebook page? Hey, can you uh, can you point me in the direction of so and so? I'm like, you guys can't use Google. I don't. I mean, I have I have put myself out there and been like, hey, if you can't find it, ask me. But obviously that hasn't happened. Sorry. That's because every time you come on, we're talking about something depressing and pre- people don't want to listen to it. That's I think. But why. then they want to see the movies anyway out of morbid curiosity. <laughs> nah, it could be that, too. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, and, and ultimately, I, I think, uh, you know, everyone knows Toe for, of course, the kaiju stuff. But then there's the little sub pockets of, of tokusatsu, like the the mutant films and uh, the bloodthirsty trilogy. But um, there's also the disaster films, which Toho has done on and off through the years, and they really don't get talked about probably as much as they should. Probably because I think at best a lot of them went to VHS, and you know their their lifespan in the United States kind of ended there. Um, but uh, these are probably two of the most well-known. Um, then, of course, there's stuff like Deathquake and uh, Conflagration and, um, and what have you. So, uh, yeah, okay, so we're going to talk about The Last War, 1961, um, which I have plenty of notes and stuff to go through uh, the, the whole production angle. But uh, I think Matt is probably going to take us through a series of events... Um, regarding uh, nuclear crises um, to yep. kind of set the stage for um, the events preceding the film and even some things that happened later on that the film kind of, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say predicted, but kind of uh, included it did really, before. really, really well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess I'll let Matt kind of lay the, the foundation here for... Uh, where the world is around this time. So, nuclear fission was discovered like in 1938, and in 1939, the United States government basically got wind of this, and they realized that Germany was actually pursuing a weapon of mass destruction, and then they began what would, be, what would become known as the Manhattan Project. And then by 1945, 1945, in July actually, the United States detonated the first ever atomic bomb, and it's one of the things that it actually did was it created um, radioactive glass in a crater that was like 250 feet wide. And then less than a month later, August 6, 1945, Hiroshima is bombed. Four and a half miles of the city were leveled. And then August 9th, of course, Nagasaki was bombed. What people realized in 1943 was that the Soviet Union actually had spies in the Manhattan Project. And there were, there were like 10 of them. There were several that weren't even realized until decades later. And the U.S. tried to block, obviously, all the sabotage that was going on. But it resulted in 1949's, the Soviet Union actually detonated their first atomic bomb. It was actually based on the Fat Boy design, which is the same bomb that the United States dropped on Nagasaki. So obviously the spies did their job and did it very well. And with a few years after, you know, the end of World War II, both the United States and the Soviet Union have nuclear capabilities. And this basically escalates in a proverbial atomic dick wagging contest for who can make the biggest and best and most effective and catastrophic weapon and then you have a a series of events by 1954 england has their first bomb france gets theirs in 1960 china in 1964 
you have India in 1974. And then in 1979, there's this thing called the, the Vela incident, which is basically a lot of it's still classified, but it's pretty well speculated that this was actually a joint test by South Africa, which, by the way, is the only nation to, to give up its uh, nuclear program on its own will. But it was a joint test by South Africa and Israel. 1998 rolls around. India makes their first test. And then 2006, you have North Korea. Actually, I take that back. India got theirs in 74. Pakistan got theirs in uh, 98. And then, of course, North Korea tests in 2006. So as you can see, once technology was out there to produce these weapons, you couldn't put it back in the bottle. Like, it was just out there. There have been... In total, about 2,065 nuclear tests that we know about, and the U.S. conducted about 1,032 of them with Russia testing over 700 different weapons. And uh, at this, the, the terrifying thing about this is that if you go out to something like NukeMap, which is just nukemap.com, and you like pick a random bomb, what they do is they let you pick a known weapon and the destruction that it would cause, and you can pick your home city, and you can say detonate, and you can see how much of your city would be left. And these weapons can destroy hundreds of square miles per weapon. And that leads us to the Korean War. In the 1950s, North Korea invades South Korea. But to understand that, you have to understand that, that Korea was actually divided up between the United States controlling South Korea or, and you had Russia and China that were influencing North Korea. And there was a, a goal to unify the two countries – and so they fought for three years, and three million people died. And the the thing that comes out in this movie, which we'll talk about in the plot synopsis, is that Korea was actually divided by the 38th parallel, which is referenced in the film, and at least in my subtitle version, as the 38th line. So it's pretty clear what the movie is referencing. It's referencing the, the Korean conflict, the fact that nuclear prol proliferation is getting out of control. And that's kind of where we were. Plus, we had, in the 1940s, late 1940s, you had... The Civil War of China coming to an end. You had Vietnam War that actually started in 1955 that ended in 1975. So in, in Asia, there's just war everywhere. And that's the, the kind of tone that this movie is tapping into. And that's why everything is so bleak, why the threat is very real. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a good transitioning spot. Did you mention NATO and the Warsaw Pact? Oh, yeah. Uh, so... Basically, I see that in your NATO. Notes. It's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1949, NATO was formed, which is basically the United States and a bunch of other countries. And the whole goal of it is to create this sort of unified front that if one country is inevitably pulled into war, you'd have to face all of them. It's a way to protect yourself and your allies by hoping that nobody's going to attack anybody else. That's followed up by the Warsaw Pact, which is the Soviet Union's version of the same thing, where if you attack any country within the Soviet Union or its allies, though, then you would be attacked by everybody within the Warsaw Pact. And so that leads us to the Federation and the alliance as shown in the last war, where, again, any country that is part of the pact, if you attack one, it's an attack on everybody. And so that's why there's this whole thing about mutually assured destruction, which is actually a real thing. It's uh, the policy that the United States and the Russians had. That if a nuclear strike happened, they would just obliterate each other into a, and, and there would be nothing left. And so it was a way to deter attacks at the same point promising total devastation for both sides. The hope was nobody would use nukes. So that's why that, that's there. But the reality is 
as we're going to say, as I'll talk about a little bit later, there's a lot of very close nuclear incidents <laughs> where like we've literally almost had nuclear war and not even known about it until it was declassified several decades later. Okay, yeah, I, I want you to get into uh, some of those nightmare scenarios as, as we go on. So, um, so yes, that brings us to the last war. So, I guess kind of uh, 1961, um, you have these uh, alliances, and of course, the um, NATO and the Warsaw Pact are, like Matt said, they're reflected in the alliance and the... Um, federation uh in this movie so um uh basically i will i guess do you think this is a good time to kind of get into the origins of of this film yeah man let's do it okay so the last war um this is was uh kind of born out of a situation um if you're our age anyway i think probably the most common reference in pop culture is 1998, the year that we had both Armageddon and Deep Impact released. Um, Two movies with astoundingly similar premises released from different studios in the same year. Um, So there's something kind of similar here. Um, So in the magazine Weekly Shincho, there was a story called The First 41 Hours of World War III. Um, And uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka... uh, at Toho had noticed the story and um, immediately tried to, you know, get a script adaptation going, trying to secure the rights. However, Toei had already acquired the rights to make it into a movie called The Final War, um, which was released in 1960 and had the endorsement of the author of the original story. Um, so, because of that, uh, Final War was f- completed and finished earlier. Um, Toho had to rework the script a few times. The original script was by Shinobu Hashitomo and Toshio Yasumi. Um, and uh, it went into a second draft written by Kajiro Ire, who, is a, who was a Nori University professor. And then a new interview study team member named Toshio Shinzo... Um, uh, and that draft was still considered too similar to um, the Toei version. Uh, then a third draft was done with the original screenwriters Hashitomo, uh, Hashimoto, I'm sorry, and Yasumi returning. Um, then Yasumi did two more drafts on his own. Um, and then, of course, who comes in to write the sixth and final draft is uh, Toho's favorite grumpy, cynical screenwriter, uh, Takeshi Kimura. Um, and uh, the movie was originally offered to a director named Hiramichi Horikawa, um, who has directed a bunch of stuff that I I don't even think has been released here. Um, I guess the most the biggest thing is he worked on a bunch of Kurosawa movies. Um, he was not a fan of how much uh, how effects heavy it would be, um, so he was replaced by Shu Matsu- Matsubayashi. Uh, I feel like Matt with some of these names. Um, Thanks. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, you know what? I've I've earned that. It's fine. <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, it uh, was an expensive movie with uh, a cast of stars: um, Yuriko Hoshi, Akira Takarada, um, Frankie Sakai, uh, and uh, a good eight hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollars being uh, spent on the effects. Um, 
And uh, I do have some notes on the American version as well as some stuff about the final war and how it compares. Uh, But first, I think now is a good time to get into our synopsis and review. Um, So for the synopsis, uh, I am going to throw it over to Matt, who said if he had to do one, it would be this one. So you have to do one. And it's this one. Where is... I can tr- I can try to help. We we can we can double team this. I feel if like this one should be relatively easy. I mean, you know, you, know. you would because you're good at this stuff. <laughs> let's let's do it. Um, so basically, it's 16 years after the end of World War II. Japan seems to be doing significantly better uh, after the war. You have uh, uh, Tamura, who is he's a driver for like a, a press center, and he's basically his whole band. He's a father of family. He's hoping for happiness for his family. He's been making money and what I think is like what the stock market or whatever, buying and selling things. Um, his daughter is dating a, uh, someone in the Naval fleet. And that is of course played by Akira Takarada. And basically their whole band, their, their, uh, their relationship is him going off to sea and coming back multiple times. And then they're asking the father to agree to their marriage, which of course in the end that, that does, uh, he does agree to that. Meanwhile, you have tensions between, the Federation and the Alliance, which are, again, basically stand-ins for NATO and the Warsaw Pact. And the tensions are all over Korea. They mention the 30th parallel by name. And Japan in the movie, it's really interesting how they portray it. Japan is constantly not involved in the actual conflict, but is seeking peace from both sides, calling for meetings. And one of the things, the most harrowing thing, I think, is a line that's delivered by the Prime Minister of Japan where he basically says... Because we are in the Federation, if there is a nuclear attack, we can certainly expect that it will come to Tokyo or something along those lines. And even though Japan is basically trying to play peacemaker, because they belong to the Federation, they also realize that they're going to be involved in any sort of full-scale war. At that point, war breaks out in Korea. There's dogfights between jets and things. Nuclear missiles are used at one point. Um, And the war escalates there's a couple incidences where there's a malfunction with a nuclear missile um they prevent it from detonating on one side the other side has this like false alarm where there's a fuse in a uh, radar detection system that that thinks incoming missiles are coming on and they realize that it was actually caused by a mishap with um equipment which is a thing that would actually happen later on in real life more than one time it happened uh, in Russia and it also happened in NORAD, and we'll talk about that a bit more. By the end of the film, nuclear weapons are finally launched by all sides, and you have several cities that are annihilated, and you are treated to all kinds of insane destruction sequences with, with cities exploding and mushroom clouds, and there's, uh, Tokyo is basically covered in like molten lava at one point. It's a pretty grim ending. And then the family that we've been following, the father... They're all killed. The survivor, the only survivor of the main cast is basically the um, Kira Takarada's character. And at the end, everyone on his ship decides, you know what? We're going to go back home to Tokyo, knowing full well that when they get there, they're going to die of radiation poisoning. And uh, that's the end of the movie. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a barrel of laughs. Um, uh, so, I, I, yeah, most of our time is spent with this family and just 
kind of them just being normal people, and we're kind of thrown between that and the uh, Japanese government talking about what they what their next step is. You know, they're really trying to play um, peacemaker, uh, but it really kind of plays on the very real paranoia that they were going on at the time with at the time because you know them being uh, unique and that to this day they're still the only country to have you know survived uh, a nuclear attack they're very much like yeah we, this can't happen to us again um and if these two sides can't play nice like it's going to and that's exactly what happens um as far as well, uh yeah, yeah go ahead. if i can interject something that's, i think that's kind of interesting about how the movie is is structured is you have this this central character family members you're following and then you have all the tangential ones shooting off of that so you're following uh timura frankie sakai's character his his daughter sayako you know his wife who's who's sick he has two children he's living in an, an affluent life he's a driver you know he's he's made money in the stock market so you have an affluent you know equivalent of you could say upper middle class family uh and then the daughter with being with takarada you get the point of view of somebody who's being in the military actually involved in this and due to Temura being a driver for either it's a press center or it's the consulate i'm not sure yeah, if it's ever made it's yeah. like yeah. press it's never, it's never specifically uh, yeah. Yeah. it's like a press but, company though you're yeah you're on the right track because yeah. he drives so, like reporters and stuff around exactly and uh what's what's also interesting so you get he's hearing things as a driver you have the connection of takarada's friend who is a cook on the boat Whose, whose daughter runs a, I guess, a preschool, day, kind of like a live-in daycare center, I guess. So you're, you're in, in addition to following this family, you're getting all of these different, these different people that have different perspectives, and there's different effects of the war on them. You're also getting the Japanese government. You're also getting the people on the on the ground floor of these bases on both sides of the Federation and the Alliance. So it really is doing its best to kind of show you how this situation affects everyone and all of their perspective on it and how at the same time, no, nobody can want war to happen. Nobody can want all this to happen, but it can still happen. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of like reading reviews and stuff online and, um, you know, looking at comments on like IMDb and stuff. A lot of people, I, I'm interested to hear what you guys think of this because it might be the, the biggest criticism I've seen. I can kind of see, both sides of it is a lot of people find it kind of jarring how far removed the like political stuff and the military stuff is from like the main plot of the family um a lot of people kind of feel like those scenes are a lot more cold um but i don't know i kind of feel like i i kind of feel like that disconnect helps a little bit I agree. I, I think the biggest the biggest detriment to the movie is the you know the fact that any of the non Japanese actors are terrible. <laughs> right, um, hundred you know, percent accurate. Yes, it, it's really <laughs> unfortunate because like the production value of this is extraordinarily high. You know, the copy that I have is is pretty is not the greatest copy in the world. It's pretty terrible. But even still, you can tell that it's extraordinarily well shot. That they threw a lot of money at the actual production, and you mentioned. $83,000 on just the special effects. Like this is this is before King Kong versus Godzilla, so this is before the giant kaiju boom 
This is just a massive budget, you know, a movie, you know, equivalent of like a, a blockbuster film. Yeah, um, and the cast is, I mean, incredible as well. Like you look at who they got to Kira Takarada. Frankie Sakai is incredible in this. Yeah, and he's cast really interestingly because he's, you know, he's known for comedic parts. And because of that, he's immediately likable and, and, you know, the audience identifies with him and you want to be laughing with him. But, you know, the reality is he's like just he's living in denial. Yeah, and he he shows a lot of uh, probably a lot more range in this role than probably a lot of people are are used to from him. Um. But yeah, the I love the the my favorite uh scene with the, the foreign actors is the when they the one nuke is like it's like accidentally gonna be launched and like it just so happens that the guy's giving like this speech about like yeah you know uh you know I'm gonna go home and play golf and play chess with my kids like I just can't wait I'm gonna have the best vacation ever uh you know oh do you guys have kids and like they and then and then he's just like I, it almost sounds like a joke but he's he pretty much like I'm paraphrasing but he's pretty much like you know it really would be a be awful if that uh green button turned red and <laughs> and and a nuke went off and then like 10 seconds after he says that it, the button turns and he's like oh my god <laughs> and then it turns out like that was the first accident. Yeah, that, that was like wasn't, the isn't that when they were just the like, oh, the uh, the command panel malfunctioned or something? Yep. You, there you was a faulty you were, circuit. Yeah, there was a faulty circuit. You almost could have destroyed the nation or something. And the guys just like, oh, oops. Like before we, we talk about some of the other movie stuff, I want to segue from that into like some of the actual things that happened almost. Because so yeah. There is, so in the movie, there's that scene, and then there's a later scene where an avalanche causes uh, something to go off in a nuke, and they, they the guy has to like get on top of it and disarm it. So, yes, you were saying that things like this have happened alarmingly more often than than we would think. It's it's uh, reading this stuff is insane. But there's first of all, there's a really it's not a great documentary, but the information in the documentary is pretty excellent called Countdown to Zero. I think it came out in like 2010, 2011. It's very widely available on the internet. I encourage anybody who's interested in learning more about this to watch it. Um, but in 1961, there was a, uh, a B-52 bomber that it basically broke up in the air and it was carrying two nuclear weapons. One of them, had a, they both had a parachute. The first one parachuted successfully. There was no issue with the bomb. The second one, the parachute failed. It landed, and there were um, five fail-safe switches. Four of them failed. So they were basically a hair-trigger away from blowing up North Carolina. Um, so that's one that could be such, worse. Yeah, you know. <laughs> okay. um, there are several instances of, like, malfunction with uh, NORAD's radar systems were like they actually went down for a second and they thought either a the russians were had launched like a emp attack and it knocked out like half the there was a power outage in the u.s basically and it appeared to be russian interference initially and we, we scrambled fighters to attack russia before realizing like it was just on our end um there is there was an incident where in norad one of their uh, basically their training computers a training deck got stuck into a computer and, and it basically simulated an all-out nuclear assault with like 2,000 incoming missiles and this went on for seven minutes 
And so they were actually, the jets were in the air getting ready to take out Russia before they realized, oh shit, there was a, this was a training mistake. Somebody left the tape, the tape in the, the console basically, and it simulated this thing and nobody knew that it was in there. Like that kind of mistake almost ended the world, which is insane to think about. There was another instance where, uh, instance where, um, Boris Yeltsin and like, and this is as far back as the nineties, like 1995. So the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, he actually was getting ready to order a nuclear strike because they determined a rocket was heading. Uh, it was a rocket that was studying the Northern Lights, but they thought it was actually a ballistic missile and they were getting ready to order a strike. There's another uh, incident during the Cuban Missile Crisis where there was a nuclear submarine underwater. Nobody knew that it was there. They detected it on radar. They dr- the U.S. Uh, Navy actually dropped depth charges as warnings to, to basically get it to surface. And on that particular submarine, you had to have the officers, three officers had to be in agreement before you could launch a nuke. And two of them actually wanted to launch a nuke to take out the Navy. And the third one um, dissented and basically said that he wasn't going to do it. They needed to surface and wait for, for, for orders. So, like, those are all just some, not even all of the, inc- the, the incidents that were near nuclear misses, uh, strikes or whatever. And we could have just obliterated each other and the thing is if you launch that many nuclear missiles there would be so much destruction that you could cause a nuclear winter you would you would destroy all of europe basically all of north america like the the kinds of consequences are just they're it's hard to even put them into context like that's just probably half of the things that we know about that are documented because of the freedom for information act there's probably more and one of the things that's interesting is you had these um Minuteman missiles, right? So the idea was you could launch a nuclear missile in under a minute. That's how quickly you could launch uh, a nuclear strike. And at the uh, at one of the bases, you only need two people. Two lieutenants had command of up to 50 missiles. So if you had the wrong two people in that position who wanted to do something catastrophic, they could. I don't What's know about even you more ridiculous than that is there's a John Oliver bit on all of our our nuclear mishaps that have been like a plane sitting on a runway for over 24 hours, unlocked, filled with yeah. nuclear weapons, and even more just just complete stupidity. There's just there's no word for it other than stupidity that could have led to a nuclear explosion on United States soil. <laughs> it's I, we have thousands thousands of missiles still, and these are using some technology still like from the eighties, like you have to, some of the missiles can st- still only be launched with like a floppy disk. Think about that. Does do people are listening to our podcast, like floppy disk because they're probably too young to even know what that is. Like, it's just, I don't know. Are you guys that cool with the kids? <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm just saying like, it's just, it's one of those things. And the thing about a nuclear strike is if you were to, that the way it would happen is you would launch a nuke, and you would explode it in the atmosphere over the country, and the EMP would basically fry all the electronics first and take out their, take out any of their warning systems, their radars. It would take out any sort of electrical, you know, architecture infrastructure. Um, and then once the country was basically helpless, then you would hit it with a bazillion missiles, and so like it would just, I mean, complete and total genocide. Like there'd be nothing left at that point. And the, the gravity of these strikes, like you can take out entire countries and states with a single missile. Like you can, 
destroy a swath of several hundreds of miles with one single attack. And like, that's the thing that like, since the end of, you know, the quote unquote end of the cold war, like it's kind of been, we haven't thought about it much. Like we, we talk about Iran, we talk about North Korea, but like in the sixties, people lived under the constant threat of nuclear war. You had the whole duck and cover thing with like the train, like kids go, went to school and learned how to duck and cover. Like that was going to protect them from a nuclear bomb. I don't know. It's just, it's frightening to think about, I guess. Well, it is because you think about all of these decades built up to now, and it's no one's getting rid of them. We're just stockpiling them more and more. Well, we seem to like them. <laughs> we, I mean, yeah. I mean, within if, the if last, you want to go with the, the wagging dick analogy. I mean, it's true. It's a hundred percent what it is. It's like, well, I did. We have a our president literally said at one point, like, my nukes are bigger than his nukes. <laughs> I mean, you also did say there's like the Minuteman missiles. If you want to keep going down this path, oh, it, yeah. <laughs> shut up! Sorry, that one. <laughs> sorry, that one took a second for, to click. I guess it, it did. Um, I think I don't. Yeah. It, sorry, I, I saw Doctor Strangelove before this. Oh, I so love that movie so much. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me not to think of any apocalypse scenario without thinking of like the final scenes of all of the government officials going. Well, you know, the ratio of, of uh, females to males to rebuild civilization, you know, things don't look too bad, do they? I think my you know, favorite it, part is, like, the, the Russian spy that's, like, he's not a spy. I'm like, you have a camera. No, I don't. And, like, he's taking pictures as they're going into the bunker. It's hilarious. That, that, what, uh, this actually goes into another point that's interesting about The Last War is this movie came out before the Cuban Missile Crisis, before yep. the movie Failsafe, and before Dr. Strangelove. And it accurately predicted all the different mis- mishaps that we would have. And the, the other terrifying thing about nuclear material is that when the Soviet Union fell in 91, they lost control of all these different territories and countries. And when they – and those countries still had missiles. They still had missile-producing facilities. And, like, the security was non-existent. People were walking in, cutting fences, and taking nuclear material. And the, and the fact that there have been people caught buying or selling or stealing – they basically have said it's it's mostly happenstance. They were always caught with nuclear material basically because they got caught doing something else bad. It wasn't like they were hunting them. It was complete serendipity, like it was an accident that they got found out. There are <laughs> numerous accounts of like submarines that crashed with missiles with missiles and bombs on board. The, the weapons were never rec- recovered. You have several accidents with planes that went and sank in the sea that had weapons aboard, never recovered. So like there's missiles out there that are just – hanging out basically yeah that's uh it's not good man <laughs> that that's all <laughs> horrifying just watch that watch the documentary like the, the it's it's one of the most eye-opening things and the fact that we've been so close to nuclear war multiple times and and when you have when you have mutually assured destruction, a.k.a. MAD, when you have that as your doctrine or philosophy for nuclear weapon use, it means that the second one nuke goes off, everyone's gone. Like, it's just every the, the country that you're attacking is going to be gone, and then they're going to respond with their nukes. And the reality is you can hit any target from any base within 30 minutes. Like, that's what ballistic missiles have done. You can hit any place in the world within 30 minutes with a nuclear weapon. And we didn't really talk – I didn't talk about it much, but like in the 1950s, Russians actually launched Sputnik, which is the first you know, satellite. So at that point, 
you're you're considering warfare coming from space, like warfare from above with satellites. You would have even less time if a nuke was launched, aka what we saw in Godzilla 1985 with the nuke from from space. Those are all very real things. It's just I don't know. There, there's there's too many nukes available, and there's too many idiots that have the ability to use them. I think it and, speaks volumes that we don't really have. Uh, I mean. Chernobyl is probably the one exception that has taken uh, radiation seriously in any way, shape, or form in who the hell knows how long. Oh, you mean um, like a pro, like a program movie show, et cetera, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, just, we, we don't have any – when you think about this, you know, the, the, the era of this movie coming out, 1961, you have On the Beach coming out in 1959 and then subsequently Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove. That's, you know, in, within 10 years – Four movies about a nuclear apocalypse. Um, granted, you know, one of which Japanese, three of the other three being, um, I believe, all American productions, without it, with the exception of Doctor Strangelove in in, uh, in England. Um, can you name four in the last ten years? I mean, what we had, we had, you could say uh, Shin Godzilla for a few seconds uh, <laughs> at the end of the movie. Um, uh, I, it's just not a thing. Um, we're, well, the, you know, and, the, we're not Godzilla looking... is the one franchise that probably should keep addressing this. <laughs> but yeah, yeah well, right. of course, you had Michael Doherty come out and say that nukes are awesome. And well, you know, essentially, cool. yes. Uh, he, 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 the the commentary track on the Godzilla King of the Monsters Blu-ray is full of some very problematic uh, views on, I guess, nu- nuclear energy and. Uh, I guess the implications of of nuclear weapons, um, but yeah, we're not really seeing much of it. I mean, even in the eighties, I mean, there was still like some Cold War kind of like Red Dawn and stuff. Yeah, I mean there there was there there were certain things in there, um, but yeah, just in general, um, it doesn't really seem like we're as worried about nukes as we probably should be. Well, I mean, I think a lot of that's because in our in our films, nukes are always used as like a force of good. So you have like Independence Day and, you know, the 90s and you have nukes casually used in like the Dark Knight Rises where like it blows off in the coast and like it's fine. Oh, it's the, Godzilla uh, yeah, the Godzilla 2014, same thing. Nuke, it it yeah. goes off in a populated area and it's whatever. It's been completely removed from the like the negative side of our psyche as far as Westerners are concerned. We just we don't think we think that we have them. And because we have them, nothing can happen to us. And that's not true. One of the things that's pointed out in this documentary is that if an attack were to happen, it probably wouldn't be in the form of country versus country. It would probably be in the form of a smuggled-in nuclear bomb that somebody could, could bring into a city. And the reality is there's, there's such lax security, at specifically in some of the former Soviet Union facilities, that it's actually possible. And there have been people um, – that have tried to buy bombs, that have built bombs, they're trying to build bombs. The guy that did the sarin gas attack in Japan, he tried to buy a nuke before that. Could you could you imagine? Like that's there the doomsday. There's a couple of doomsday cold things where they tried to go to, um, I believe it was Turkey or Russia. It was it was one of those? But they they tried to get their hands on nukes. There's a number of documented instances where people have luckily been caught, but they were trying to build their own bomb. And the reality is. There's too many. There's too much material available, and if you have the material, that's that's the hardest part. The technology is actually pretty easy to build if you have the money and the resources. Like, 
It's use the internet. It's, yeah, I'm sure there's some. No, like some for real. Like the, there's a no, kid it, that built a yeah, nuclear yeah. reactor in his freaking like barn or something. He yeah, you just beat me. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, like that, <laughs> I forget, like his name, but he like he built a he literally built a. It's insane. Yeah. Well, there, there's a point. Uh, there's a uh, a line of dialogue in the last war that uh, Tamura says that I thought was kind of interesting because it ties into that whole denial aspect of, of the character and us as a culture right now and and then i guess um he denies that any nuclear war could happen because yes. it, would, it would kind of amount to admitting that there's no mercy for regular people like he and his family uh that there is no that basically if, if there is a god he doesn't care about you he doesn't care about any of this any anyone around us uh, that they're basically that all is nothing it's kind of like that idea that if if this can happen all is meaningless and it's like he, he he seems to grapple with that concept. And the reality is when you're dealing with mutually assured destruction, it's like, well, yeah, if a faulty circuit, you know, leads to nuclear war, then uh, make, yeah. make whatever philosophical <laughs> conclusion you'd like to from that. Um, I think there actually was a David Lynch pilot he wanted to make that was like a, a comedy of errors where like a spit bubble causes a nuclear weapon to go off or something um, because that's, you know. That's how yeah, Lynch's brain be. works. I just imagine this movie being made with, you know, your Japan and every, you know, you have North Korea, you have Vietnam, and all these wars that are going on around you. You have China that's just dealing with the the end of their civil war in 1949, and then this movie comes out, and it's the reality is the United States actually at one point had nuclear weapons in South Korea, like that was a that we we had them stationed in the country like it's just our we have bases everywhere with nukes we have nukes right now that are sitting in turkey like it's just the potential for there to be another arms race is there and especially with the way that russia currently is like it's it's still a threat but like nobody's really talking about it and that's the problem i think and that's that's one of the big misses i think with something like shin godzilla well like everything was okay in the end kind of I felt like they could have taken that and they could have gone to a really a large extreme and it would have been the right time and the right political climate to, to address that again. And that gets followed up, of course, with their most recent film in 2019. We're like, yeah, we use a nuke to heal Godzilla. And it's I get the logic behind that because Godzilla feeds on nuclear energy, but it just it is a slap in the face to what the character originally was for. I just I think the. The context of which this movie coming out is really interesting. Um, the fact that it is, you know, 1961, you're not that far away from from World War II. You're not that far away from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's it's still fresh in the memory. It, this is only, this is less than 10 years after the original Godzilla came out. Um, you have a movie addressing post the post-war bubble addressing you know if there's so much that the, it op- the movie opens up with like a, a montage of like bustling tokyo like look at this amazing amazing metropolis uh you know uh tomorrow's constantly talking about how successful things are and how great things are since the war how he and his wife you know right after the war they had nothing now they live in practically a mansion and you know we look at it now and it's like a middle-class household but to him it's a mansion by comparison uh you know they're 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 addressing a lot of interesting issues of the day and 
not framing it in a negative light, but framing it in a let's let's take a step back and think about it sort of light when you're you know, we're celebrating all of this success and all of these all this material material uh, material success. Um, and the world around us is so precarious. People te- people, you know, uh, even Tamora when he finally cracks at the end, what does he say? I did I spend too much time worrying about making money and getting rich? And his family's like, no, you've been a good father. Don't worry. But it's like that obsession with with everything that's in front of you kind of gives people horse blinders to the broader scope of what can happen around them that is outside of their control. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and even uh, I think was it uh, his daughter even says like, you know, if we don't if we don't if we don't stand up and and you know uh, and try to do something about this. You know, things are just, this is just going to happen. I think uh, one of the first scenes of the movie, I can't remember which character, um, one of them does bring up like, oh, you know, we, war could, you know, war war could happen. And then uh, the other one says like, oh, well, you know, these days, you know, World War II is over with, um, you know, we, we have smart people running all these nations, and, you know, it's, it, it, cooler heads will prevail. And, I mean, that's clearly not what happens. <laughs> yeah. But basically the idea is like, well, if they're running countries, they're clearly smart, so smart people would not be capable of doing this. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. I, I, the, I really think that Frankie Sakai's character, Tamura, uh, he, you know, he's the oblivious guy that's just going about his daily life. He's trying to be a good father. That's his goal. He's trying to provide for his family. And there's that, that thing where he and his wife planted tulips when they first got married. So they're going to plant tulip. They're going to have these tulips for when their daughter gets married. And there's that bit at the end where they realize that impending doom is upon them, and everybody has this like meltdown and like it's it, it's absolutely heart wrenching and just hopeless to see that. But then they they decide to go ahead and plant them anyway because they say, well, when all this is over and we're gone, you know, maybe they'll still have a chance yeah, to life. Maybe yeah. maybe the tulips will still grow anyway. There's some something else to be said about the arranged marriage situation, which is a separate topic from all of this very um, uh, exciting nuclear nuclear talk. Um, <laughs> the fact that you know uh, Frankie Sakai's character Tamura is constantly talking about the progress since World War II, but at this on the same token, he's trying to arrange a marriage for his daughter. Yep, who is in love with somebody else and already in a relationship that he doesn't know about. And then when when Takarada's character Takano is about to be redeployed onto his ship, um, uh. Uh, Tamara's wife is the one who gives permission for her to go and kind of has to give him a reality check of like, do you remember how, what it was like when you were in a relationship? And, you know, uh, this is kind of that showing something kind of interesting that you would probably see you, I guess we associate more in, in Ishiro Honda's films is that, that taking the, the current day political climate and not just, using little tiny bits of dialogue to inform a larger picture of, you know, yeah, there's been a lot of progress, but really your head is still up your ass. Um, (laughs) 
uh, something that's also kind of interesting is uh, Yuriko Hoshi in in this film as Psycho and also in Godzilla vs. Mothra and Kijutsu the Three-Headed Monster. She always plays uh, a young, you know, somewhat dominant female character, which we, when you compare the characters in The Prophecies of Nostradamus, you see that that archetype is absolutely nowhere to be found. Um, yeah, she does not put up with her dad's crap at all. She's They're, like, constantly fighting initially. Like, she's quipping, and the mother's basically playing the referee at dinner time and stuff. Yeah, and uh, the mother, Oyoshi, is, like, she's the one who says, you know, I'm not going to wait for my husband to give my daughter permission to go say goodbye to the person that she's in love with. This is ridiculous. I, I also like how, uh, like, it's right before dad comes home from work, and I think it's the youngest daughter. Um, she's like... Do your homework later. Like, just relax. Watch some cartoons. And, and then they hear Dad come in the door, and she's like, the kid runs over to the table and like pretends to do her homework. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like I like the little character beats like that. The character beats are excellent, honestly. Like, I found them really engaging and interesting, and, and incredibly just believable and authentic. And and I mean, just I, I felt like they're just like a normal family, like doing normal family with normal everyday problems and like and that's why the ending is just ugh. well yeah I, I think that i mentioned earlier the kind of disconnect and tone and feel between the scenes in the fan of, of the the family and that our, our core cast and then when it goes to these military bases or these government assemblies um yeah i think that making them so normal is like we're basically seeing how all this stuff can affect just your average person. You know, I mean, how many times have you read a comment on the internet or maybe even talked to someone in real life about, you know, such and such is going on in this country and, you know, oh, what if we do go to war? And I mean, how often do you hear something like, well, it doesn't affect me at all. And this shows that, you know, even your average Joe you know, your normal, everyday family can be severely affected in the worst way, I mean, killed, because of, you know, the things going on in geopolitically or, or whatever. Also, the fact that there's, that the characters are all struggling to maintain normalcy throughout this. You, we were talking about people being yeah. oblivious to the current nuclear state of the, state of the world and and the situations, you know, all of the different brinks, all the brinksmanship, all of the different potential for, for things going south. Uh, these characters throughout the film are really just trying to continue going about their life, despite all of this, despite the fact that they know that there are things happening and the stakes are getting higher and higher. You know, World War Three is announced. You know, everyone panics and flees Tokyo. For a minute, we follow the mother of a of one of the children at the daycare of the daughter of the cook on the ship with Akira Takarada's character. Right. And we see how that affects her and she can't get back to the daycare. She calls, yeah, she calls them and, and and the kids like, you know, is everything going to be okay or whatever? And I think the mom is like, yeah, I'll come and get you and we'll eat. It's some kind of sweet snack or a sweet or or something. I forget exactly what she says that they're going to have, but then, you know, you know, we end up seeing her like pass out in the street, and that's the last we see of either of those characters. I mean, we we see the city blow up. We know what happens to them, but 
but yeah, it, it, it's a very good example of, you know, these are normal people and normal mothers with normal children who want normal things. Um, and uh, it's interesting that I feel like a lot of movies, I mean, we brought up Dr. Strangelove on the beach. There's a lot of movies that deal with this subject matter, but... Um, you're usually following some people in the government, you're usually following, um, some people in the military or whatever as your main characters, but here it's just your average, your, your average Joe. This is what your everyday citizen is going to go through if something like this happens. Absolutely. And also what you see in the military outside of the Japanese government is the people who are running the missile silos. We're not seeing any foreign leaders, any foreign dignitaries. We're not seeing anything like that. We're only seeing the guys who have to be pushing the switch. And even then, um, I mean, it's a hilarious scene because it's poorly acted and scripted, but the the part where the guy... <laughs> the part where the... the I think it... I don't I, I'm. I think he's supposed to be an American, is, is saying, like, you know, yeah, you know, I just want to, you know... When I get home, I just want to spend some time with my family. Like they're not—they're—they're they're talking about life. They're not really talking about work, except for the part where he's like, "Well, gee, that'd be really bad if that turned red." Oh crap! What? <laughs> I think when they do launch the missile, that guy's like says something to the effect of like, "God forgive us" or something. And That's then, right. Yeah, before he's about yeah. to press the switch, he says like, "God, God forgive me" or, or something like that. So that's the same guy from uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. In the sixties, if Toho yep. needed an American guy, it, they, it was that guy. Yeah, that, you you call that guy. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so Did you like I mean, their awkward embrace during that scene, Bird, when like he gives that dude like the weirdest man side <laughs> hug thing ever. Yeah, yeah. That's like delayed when he starts the hug and then it stays too long there. <laughs> that's how Bird gives hugs, by the way, guys. Just so everybody knows. Uh, no, he doesn't. He doesn't give them at no, all. I give Bird well, yeah. hugs and Bird does that back, and you know. Yeah, um, if I'm going to be forced into hugging, it's usually something like that. Um, how did so? How do you guys have a? What's your take on the ending with the the Navy guys deciding? You know what? We're we're gonna go back home. Um, do you? What what's your take on maybe why why they decided to do that? Because on the beach came out a couple of years before that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at that point, it's like. They don't know what's left of the world and what's not, so why not go home? The result's going to essentially be the same. Yeah. Well, we see, like, every major city... Just get annihilated, right? <laughs> right. So, but they don't, they don't know what's... I mean, they probably assume that everything's gone, but they... Obviously, going back there means for them... Because they talk about, like, the risks of radiation. They, I think even the captain's like, everybody understands what this means, and then they do the whole about-ship thing. Yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like, people were in the... Like, they went back to the city pretty much immediately. Probably, obviously, oblivious to what was going to happen to them. I don't know if it's a stand-in for that or not, but, like, that's that's probably a very real sentiment. Like, if you have nowhere else to go, I guess I'm going to go back home. Mm-hmm. I find it also interesting that that scene ends with uh, with the cook, whose name I really wish I remembered. Ibarra? Or something, Ibarra? something similar, yeah. something yeah. similar to Ibarra. But just how everyone is just completely somber, and he just brings out coffee. Yeah, and he's and like, nothing's just... better than a good cup of coffee. Yeah, it makes you feel happy to be alive. 
and it's just that kind of like you know still trying to maintain a sense of normalcy just trying to keep going despite the fact that everything is gone Mm -hmm. i i think despite it being an extraordinarily dark ending i think what you know and even though there is an epilogue you know just the 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 fade out over devastated tokyo the story is only fiction but it could happen tomorrow we must prevent it whatever um i i i can't say the ending is like nihilistic it is just this can happen so we need to try to not let it happen it does it doesn't feel as like it doesn't feel like a throwaway you know it whatever happens doesn't matter all is lost it really does feel like even at our at, at when all is lost we you know trying to maintain our humanity and yeah. you know nothing is better than a good cup of coffee um uh so uh i think we should spend a moment to uh give uh Mr. Subaraya, a pat on the back, uh, because the destruction sequences at the end are fantastic. Um, when they go to, like, a random military base or something, and they show, like, a truck roll out of a plane or something, those parts do look a little bit like, yeah, But it's completely made up for in that finale, uh, which shows, like, New York, I think Moscow, Tokyo, like, all just exploding. Um and uh those were those uh miniatures were actually made out of basically food like uh wafers and uh cake like material um and then they would flip the set up they upside down and use compressed air uh and blast it and then they would flip the image so it looks like everything's standing up and floating upwards and um yeah it looks great not only that, there's even some of the non-special effects miniatures are are really impressive as well. Uh, the hotel that uh, Sayako and uh, Takano stay at before he's redeployed is a miniature. It's just a elaborate miniature set for just this non-special effects sequence. It never blows up. Nothing happens to it. It's just a really nice building. Um, but I, the, those, uh, the destruction sequences are so good. I mean, Toho would use that, the footage from that, like a million times. It shows up in a ton of movies. Uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World, Godzilla vs. Gigan, Prophecies of Nostradamus, War in Space. Um, I mean, all, all the way is, as late as Godzilla vs. Destroya, they were using footage from the last war. Uh, and also, um, the, the finale episode of Ultra 7 even uses some some footage from from the the end of the last war. So I mean the the stuff is so good it was still being recycled into the 90s. It's kind of, it, it this might be some of the best work that that Subaraya did and it's really really unfortunate that this movie has such a limited reach. Um if for no other reason even if, you know, aside from the, the filmmaking aside from everything is just as a showcase of special effects at the time. It's pretty breathtaking when you compare it to anything else that was being released in 1961. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll break down a couple more things uh, before I do that. Do you guys are we good to do ratings right now? Yeah, man. Well, actually, sure. OK, I have one more question because it ties into my rating. Um 
some of the scenes concerning the alliance and the federation i'm not quite exactly sure what is going on do you guys feel that way like um like at the end when they start shooting missiles at each other and the whole like i guess skirmish between i guess the two koreas like i'm not exactly sure why those things are happening i well i think it's kind of pointing to the fact that everything is I mean, literally hanging on by a thread, right? One person presses a trigger even by accident, and there's a response immediately. I know at the and, beginning, like, one of the subs, like, goes into another territory, and then there's another part where I think a plane flies in, like, ever so little, slightly into, like, across, like, a border it's not supposed to be in. But I don't, I don't think it's really said, like what the motivating action is for the war. Yeah, there's no, like, morality play. It's just war is war, and if you are part of... And I and I guess that kind of works for me, because, like, if something like that happened in real life, I'm not sure if I would know all the details of, like, what caused it. So I guess in that sense it kind of works, but... I, it did I think it's also just little... someone shot first. Yeah, but yeah, yep. it did leave me That's a little exactly. bit, like, confused as to, like, why why everything was happening. Um, but okay, so I guess that's, that's probably my only like big, I guess, complaint about it is some of that stuff felt a little bit confusing to me. Um, it's a movie, I mean, I've, I've watched it a few times. I, I think I first saw it in high school whenever, whenever the subtitled version first started floating around, but, um, it's one that continuously, um, just really kind of sticks with you, especially at the end. Um, I think it's really solid, and uh, yeah, I, I urge people to get out of the just Godzilla or just kaiju and into other areas of tokusatsu and Japanese sci-fi, and I mean, this is, I think, one of the, the, the big watermarks of, of that. Um, so I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to give this, uh, I'm teetering, I'm going to do a four, I'm teetering at a four and a half. Um, well, you know, I always like to round up, so I'm going to go with a four and a half out of five uh, decimated civilians. <laughs> um, Chris, I'll defer to you for the next rating. Oh, geez. See, I'm, I'm also between four and four and a half on this, so I would say 4.25, but that last 0.25%, I guess, depends on, on what your mood is at the time. Um, I was really not in the mood to watch either of these movies, and I watched them back to back today. <laughs> So, like, yesterday it would have been a 4.5. Today I'm just like, I really didn't need to see this. Uh, <laughs> so it would be a 4. But either way, it's like, if you're going to watch any non-kaiju tokusatsu movie, any non-kaiju Japanese special effects film of the 60s or 70s, uh, this might be it. It probably is it. It's up there, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't... Th- offhand i can't think of another one to watch uh so i would say um yeah i'm gonna also say 4.5 uh but i'm gonna go with 4.5 good cups of coffee that make you feel happy to be alive (laughs) okay um i think my only real complaint is all of the non-japanese actors because of how 
sometimes distracting and unintentionally hilarious they are and it can sort of take you out of that's in like all of these though there's always some yeah, no, idiot but there's a, I mean, talking in english and not doing a very good job of acting yeah but usually he's going on about giving mecha godzilla some final tests it's not like the world's <laughs> gonna get blown to pieces um but that's honestly like i don't really have any other any other major complaints and i'm at a very solid four and a half killed people i don't know atomic bombs whatever it's it's an excellent movie, very incredible, touching, moving character beats. Um, it'll give you all the existential angst you could ever want. Check it out. Um, all right. So I'm going to go through a couple of topics real quick before we get into the next movie. Um, the first is the American version, uh, which was released in 1965. Um, I have never watched this version, um, mostly because, like, if I didn't grow up with the uh, with an American re if something is going to be re edited edited uh, in the states if that's not my first exposure to it and especially if I hear that that version sucks I'm very reluctant to like go and check it out I ha- I have it it's on the 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 disc that I have for the Japanese version but I just never could never wanted to do it not with especially not with a movie like this um but I can give you some information um it was cut down from nearly 2 hours in the Japanese version to about 79 minutes um there was a theatrical release but I really couldn't figure out if it was the same version that played on TV later on and was on TV like throughout the 60s um but it was the whole movie was it, so the runtime was cut and it was cut to pieces um, and reassembled in flashback. So like it opens um, with them, you know, with the survivors, and then they they do flashbacks to you know the events leading up to the war and the destruction. Um, interestingly, the American version was handled by Brenko, who used a similar tactic with the human vapor, where a lot of that movie, especially in the, the you know the first act uh, was in flashback. Um, a couple more things uh, in the Japanese version um, at the daycare, the children sing because it 's around New year's they sing a, a Japanese new year 's song um, in the u s version it 's actually the disney song it 's a small world after all. Um, and it's played again as the ships sail back to the decimated Tokyo. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that that's sounds... an image that's really silly. <laughs> Interesting. Um, interestingly enough, though, that song does have a little bit of a connection. Um, so the songwriters for It's a Small World After All were uh, guys named Robert Sherman and Richard Sherman. And they wrote it in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which occurred um, only a year after you know, the, the movie w- was first released. Um, so I don't know, maybe the American distributors, even though they were cutting it and reassembling it, still kind of had their thinking caps on a little bit. Um, I'm not sure, but you guys are right. It's definitely a strange decision, at least musically. Um, I mean, I don't think, I think when I think of the apocalypse, Disney is definitely the first thing that pops in. Well, that song is, is especially like, can be torturous, what was that? I remember a news story about the guy at Disneyland that got stuck on the the ride in, with that song just like on loop for like over twenty hours or something. Oh my god! <laughs> wow, he didn't like jump to his death. <laughs> <laughs> um, another uh, uh, another thing that they did is um, 
The American version ends with an extended quote from a JF, JFK speech. Um, it's the one where uh, he says, mankind must, men, must end war or war will end mankind. Um, and so that plays out through the very end of the movie. Um, and that was an, and that's a, that's a quote that is also, I mean, obvious, obviously, if you look at the quote, it's obviously, it's obvious what he's saying. But, uh, I guess that speech was, um, part of a, a speech he gave as a memorial for, uh, Secretary General, um, who had crashed in Rhodesia while on a peace brokering mission, um, and the loss of having such a, I guess, capable peacemaker at a time when the uh, tenses, uh, tension was so high between the U.S. and the Soviet was troubling. Um, so again, it's kind of a strange decision, but um, there might be an actual, like, someone might have actually thought about it when they were making that decision. Um, and uh, <clears throat> if you watch the... Um, the American trailer is on YouTube, and um, they play part of that JFK speech in that trailer as well. Um, and then I thought, since no one can see it, at least right now, I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about The Final War, the Toei movie um, that was released in 1960, um, which is also uh, a movie that was thought to be completely lost um, until, I think, twenty yeah 2013 um they discovered a print of it and they've showed it on japanese tv a few times although it hasn't come out on video so i mean that's one that uh we can keep our eyes on the bootleg circuits for in case there's a copy floating around and some... uh, bear with me i may have found one hang on one second <laughs> uh no 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 subtitles yeah yeah i think i actually do think you're right in that i think the movie is now on the interwebs we just need a a kind bilingual uh individual to to subtitle it for us and if that ever surfaces you bet we'll be talking about it on this podcast um so depressing, depressing people you <laughs> so i just have a couple notes on it uh first i want to kind of plow through a brief synopsis um that was uh is in john lemay's book our buddy john and his lost tokusatsu film uh book um and then there are some similarities uh and differences i kind of want to talk about too um so the final war um runs at a lean 77 minutes as Cold War tensions mount, a group of high schoolers led by Shigeru flee to Japan in a yacht. When the, when the yacht is overtaken by a typhoon, they are rescued by a reporter Masaki, who makes the story front-page news. Around the same time, Masaki begins dating Tomoko, a nurse in Tokyo. Tensions mount when a U.S. Air Force plane accidentally detonates a nuclear bomb over South Korea, who in turn blames North Korea. This cranks Cold War tensions up to a fever pitch. The U.S. 7th Fleet mobilizes at a base in Japan, and soon a U.S. plane is shot down over the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union warns Japan that all their bases in Japan will be bombed. Masaki, Shigeru, and his family flee to the forest, while Tomoko elects to stay behind with a sick child patient in Tokyo. The city is bombed as the evacuees watch from the wilderness. A panicked Masaki braves Tokyo's radiation to search for Tomoko, who he finds dead next to her patient. Masaki himself dies from radiation ex exposure soon after. Um, so, yeah, that one's another uh, another fun fun one. Um, 
some interesting things about this is uh, this movie uh, isn't as toothless, I guess, in terms of international relations in that it directly identifies the U.S. and Russia as the feuding countries. Um, and uh, it's a lot more – it's even darker than The Last War um, in that, like, during, for example, during the evacuation scenes, like, it shows women, like, being raped – um, there's a post credit scene where they show real-life starving and injured child war survivors. Um, it follows several families of different backgrounds uh, in a, instead of really just the one core family. So we kind of see different people, uh, different families deal with the situations. Um, it was shot in black and white, so it didn't really have the benefit of color that The Last War does. But I feel like black and white would just make it even more like dour. Um, and, uh, so, um, Toho's first draft actually did name the U.S. and the Soviets, um, and their first draft also had, uh, Yuriko Hoshi's character, um, being a nurse, so similar to the final war, and staying behind and dying with a sick patient. Um, I guess Takarada's character was trying to urge her to leave, and she stayed with the sick patient. Um, and then Toe's finished movie features some some other things that were carried over as well. Um, the Bedridden Wife, um, and uh, both movies end with the, the, the male romantic lead going back to Tokyo and, yeah, basically dying. Um, uh, there is a record of Final War being shown in the New York area in 1962, although details are sparse. Uh, and like I said, it was thought lost until very recently when it started showing up on Japanese TV, and uh, we hope to see it one day. Um, so yeah, if you wa- basically if you want an even more depressing version of The Last War, sounds like that's kind of what The Final War was. I'm sure Chris will be on that episode if it ever happens. Can't <laughs> wait. Um, okay, so I guess now we'll jump to 1974 uh, with Prophecies of Nostradamus, um, uh, which is, I guess, most known now for being one of the two banned Toho Tokusatsu films, this and Half Human, both of which were uh, uh, smuggled out of, of uh, Toho's vaults um, by, I'm sure, a concerned citizen. Uh, who wished for the public to to be able to see them, and fan subbed for for our viewing pleasure. Um, so prophecies of Nostradamus uh, is hot off the heels of Submersion of Japan. Uh, that's a movie that we covered a couple years ago. Um, I know Matt and I both really really dig that movie, but it was it was huge. I mean, and at a time when the Japanese film industry was like basically dead, dying, a very painful death. Uh, that was, like, one of the rare few, like, real money makers with Submersion of Japan. So Toho was like, hey, we should do more disaster movies. So then Prophecies of Nostradamus came to be um, when... Uh, so uh, a, an author by the name of Sutomo Goto published a nov- the novel. This is based on 1973. Um from what I understand, it's basically just like, here's a bunch of prophecies, and what if they were true? Um, so Tanaka snatched up the rights to that, and then of all people, uh, and also kind of debunking a, a little bit of urban myth here, Tanaka approached 
Godzilla vs. Hedera's uh, Yoshimitsu Bano to work on adapting this this book. Um, it's no secret that Tanaka was not a fan of Smog Monster, um, but that has kind of been conflated into he hated Bano, or he told Bano he'd never work again at Toho. Uh, truth is, Tanaka really just wasn't so sure Bano was the guy for Godzilla. He recognized his talent and his potential, and even after Hedera, he would have several meetings and uh, take several pitch submissions and script submissions from Bano for other Godzilla films. So, they, with Hedera aside, they did maintain a professional and respectful relationship. Um, and, of course, Bono ended up being the guy that basically revived Godzilla into the Monsterverse by, you know, basically shopping the rights around. Um, so there were two drafts of the script, uh, which is unusual, because usually they would at least do four. Um, they were always squeamish about the cannibal sequence, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, and it was actually removed from the final version, but they shot it and included it anyway. Um, so, uh, interesting thing is the Last Wars uh, screenwriter, um, Toshio Yasumi, has a screenplay credit. Um, his involvement is normally assumed as being like an honorary credit because it does borrow a lot of ideas and things from the last war. Um, I think that's very likely, but I was, I, I still have not been able to find an actual Japanese source for that information. I see a lot of English language sources without citation, so I'm hesitant to say it's fact, but I say it's extremely, extremely likely. Um, anyway, uh, so... The director of Prophecies, Toshio Masuda, uh, wrote the second and final draft of the script, and Bano was brought on as the assistant, um, the second unit uh, director. He did most of the New Guinea f- uh, material um, as well. And then also future Heisei Godzilla directors, uh, Koji Hashimoto and Takeo Okawara, were also assistant directors. Um, effects by uh, Teriyoshi Nakano, and assistant effects director was Koichi Kawakita. Um, The production itself was a little bit uh, troubled. I think the most infamous incident was, um, if you know Nakano, he's obsessed with explosions and fire, Uh, but one of his pyrotechnic effects uh, got out of control and uh, destroyed the entire soundstage, uh, which included a storage room that had some old stuff in it, including, sadly, the original Mogera suit from the Mysterians, um, and by the time the fire department arrived, that whole soundstage was completely destroyed. Um, interestingly, though, they went back to the destroyed building and shot footage there to be used in the movie. Um, so, with that being said, I guess, I guess since I'm already talking, um, I will quickly try and do a summary of this movie. Um, the, what you need to know is this, this movie is almost plotless. Uh, basically, we open with um, uh, I don't know. I don't know my Japanese time period. It's a long ass time ago, and uh, it was in the eighteen hundreds. Okay, eighteen eighteen fifty something. I think. Okay, so whatever period know. in Japanese history the that is, um, we have <laughs> the eighteen hundreds. Yes, that's, but you know they the have period. names. They got names. Uh, Look, everyone's got names. There's Meiji. And, the I, I don't know my Meiji from my Edo from my whatever. Uh, but um, 
we essentially look at a couple generations of this guy who is basically obsessed with Nostradamus and is always just he just, he just yells at people about things that Nostradamus says is going to happen. Um and then we go into I think World War 2 ish. Um we get another version of that guy again he's yelling at everybody about things that Nostradamus says and then we get to the present era where the man well they're all Tetsuro Tamba, the great Japanese actor. Um, uh, and he is, um, like his ancestors, just yelling at whoever will listen, uh, <laughs> about a variety of topics, uh, including, um, uh, war, pollution, starvation, uh, chemical, the improper use of chemicals, uh, you name it, um, climate change and global warming. I mean, he short people, tall people. Yeah. He, he, he is just ranting and raving about anything and everything. Um, and we basically see in, and we get a little bit of his home life. Uh, he has a, a son, um, who is a photographer, I believe. Um, and a sick no, that's, wife that's, is, wait, is that his son or is that, that's his, his daughter's boyfriend. I think Yeah, definitely daughter's boyfriend. Yeah, because she's pregnant, and that's his son. Okay. Um, so he has a family. Uh, his wife is sick um, and and dying of some respiratory thing. Um, and so uh, we, we start with uh, him. He's a doctor. He's a pediatrician, but for some reason he does a lot of the non-pediatrician things. <laughs> Actually, here, actually, this like is a him. question. I don't know if he's a pediatrician. He says he is. And Does he? Of, no, cause I, I thought Takeshi Shimura's character was a pediatrician. No, I don't know if Nishiyama... Little kid, no, no, there's, a, a, little kid there's a part where, like, a family stops him in the hallway, and, like, the, mo- the mom or, or something is like, you know, can I make an appointment for my son? And he's like, uh, well, um, I can stay a little bit after, and I can see him at 1130 or whatever. So, like... So yeah, that's like his daily job, but I but he he seems to not do it and just go to places and yell about things instead. He's a he's a, he's a general professor of th- of things. Basically, yeah. Um but yeah, no, Takeshi Shimura, there is a whole scene uh about how um you know, kids are coming out deformed and uh, I guess this one employee who I don't know who this guy again I don't know what this guy does. He's he's like Buckaroo Banzai. I guess he just does a little bit of everything. That's a great reference. But he, but yeah, there's another part where uh, like some guy who I guess is an employee. I don't know why he has employees, but he's like, oh, you know, uh, you know, I got a grandson on the way, and I, you know, and he's like, oh, ha- have a raise, and he's like, are you sure? Like, can we afford it? And he's like, nah, you're good. Have Take a raise. And then later the guy's grandson is born and is horribly deformed, and the guy is just freaking out about how this thing in the room isn't his kid, and uh, it's all it's all horrible. Um, so uh, Takeshi Shimura, I think, is the one that delivers the baby. Either that or they do have an extended conversation about def- birth deformities and yeah, it's pretty, and pretty what nice. and whether these things are even should even be considered children. It's all very not right yes um and then suddenly uh there's reports that there's giant slugs um so um our temperamental doctor and uh his i i I guess his his daughter's boyfriend uh photographer guy they go and they check it out well um 
you know, the the military shows up and they torch these giant slugs. Um, and then we hear an expedition is sent to New Guinea to in, look at some incident. There's radiation and bad shit going on there. Radioactive dust clouds. I don't, yeah. I don't know why. They never say why, I don't think. Anyway, so that team goes missing. And then they're like, oh, we got to go find these guys. And then, of course, our our angry, pissed-off doctor is like, I'll go. And for someone makes the decision to let him go. And, of course, he uh, uh, I'm pretty sure he brings photographer guy with him. And um, in New Guinea, they are assaulted by uh, cannibalistic, uh, I guess, um, uh, I don't, they're not, not quite zombies, but they, they're natives that have, have, have gotten sick from something uh, relating to the, the, the dust cloud. Um, and they are mindless, and they have a hunger for flesh. Um, so they, like, take a bite out of a guy, and then they have to kill the guy. And then uh, at one point, um, someone, like, touches one of the mutant cannibals' shoulders, and, like, the skin comes off, and it's gross. You're, you're getting all screwed up here. No. Uh, <laughs> one, you missed the mutant giant bats. The oh, yes. Yeah, the bat Yes, there's giant bats, giant plants, and giant uh, uh, radioactive leeches. And uh, but the, uh, the the cannibal thing is that's two different, two separate incidents, uh, equally gross. Um, you've got the, the the natives who are cannibals, but then when they find the original team, they're in a cave and they're basically just like cooked by radiation. So they're all just completely brain dead, and uh, and uh, uh, Tetsuro Tamba goes to touch one of their shoulders, and that like the flesh just falls off. Yeah, you see the the bone and stuff underneath. It's all, yeah, it's it's pretty grotesque. Um, but yes, yeah, of course, the giant bat uh, things. Um, bat dactyl man, they're awesome. Yeah, um, not, as far as Toho creatures go, not very convincing. Uh, no, they reminded me of the stuff from Latitude. Zero. I was just about to say it looks like <laughs> something that came out of Latitude Zero. Um, uh, so then that happens, um, and uh, I'm. Uh, they have and, to kill the. They have to kill the crew they just found. So they find the original crew that's like rotting to death. Yeah, and, and they, they, they basically do mercy killings on them. Yep. Um, they give them Christian burials for some reason, which I was like, that's interesting. I you know, it's interesting. There, up. there's uh, Christian references in the Last War too, like the the part where the girl reads yeah, the, the long Bible quote. That I kind of get though, is because Subaraya was a was Catholic, a rare Japanese Catholic and he he would always kind of there would there were, were always like little nods to that in movies he worked on like Mothra is probably the the biggest one yeah. um but yeah they bury them um and then they come back home where there's a food shortage and people are rioting um there I think they mentioned there's not enough water and people are rioting uh, uh kids have ingested some chemical that they say is giving them uh Super powers. <laughs> so I guess this is like a, also like a secret X-Men origin or something. Um, the downside is many of those die from complications. Yes. Unlike the X-Men. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, and then the sky turns green and it's like this, what do they say? It's like a, uh, convex mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Where I'm not even sure I understand what that is. Like, they like can't they like see the reflection? Yeah, yeah they, like the, they, these greenhouse gases build up and yeah. it causes it to become like a mirror. Um, yeah, and that <clears throat> that happens because a 
one of the super whatever SST jet things that can fly like crazy speeds that no longer they no longer use explodes like by itself in midair and it punctures the ozone layer or something. Yeah, shit. yeah. The the ozone layer is like it's like burning people alive basically. <laughs> The, the, yeah, there's hole. like a house that catches on fire and people like melting in the street. Or, like, yeah, and, and th- this is where they have the uh, like there's, there's these traffic jams and then like this one guy this this very impatient man um, like starts driving on the shoulder and like crashing through all these cars and he's like I hate this I like, get me out of here and then he crashes into a car like <laughs> his car flips and like ever so slightly bumps into the car in front of him. And then that car blows up, and then it causes a chain reaction of, like, every car in front of that. It, the car is just, whatever car is in front just keeps exploding and making the other one explode and so on and so forth. So it's just, like, this chain of cars exploding one after another. Uh, again, footage that was used, um, uh, recycled by Toho um, in... Um, a lot, Godzilla. Right? Yeah, a lot of movies. Yeah, um... Yeah. Uh, got, yeah, Godzilla 1985 is is probably where most people have seen it. I, I think a lot of people probably just think it's from that movie, um, but uh, but yeah, that that was used uh, a lot. I mean, it shows up in um, in the opening credits of Godzilla: Final Wars. I mean, um, that sequence um, is in quite a lot of uh, uh, Toho films. Um, and so, and then, of, and then, of course, we get word that, uh, again, basically World War Three is broken out and nukes fall. We see some new tokusatsu footage spliced in with some stock footage from the last war. Then we cut to Earth, completely scorched, and uh, out of the corners of the frame come these mutant people... Um, designed by the great uh, Tor Nurita, who did many of the classic Toho and Tsuburaya monster designs, um, and uh, if, I, I, from what I, I, I read, that Toho's like official name for them is soft-bodied humans, which just makes them even more disturbing. I don't know what that means, but it bothers me. Yeah, um, and so they see this giant worm like writhing around in what's basically like a desert um and they start fighting over it um and then they they beat each other up basically and 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 one of them get gets to eat it um and then uh we hear a familiar voice our friend um uh the doctor uh and he is talking and he's saying some things uh like you know um you know it would it would really be a shame if that happened and then like (laughs) and then they basically cut to him in like a meeting with some other science folks and he's like and those are all the things that could happen if we let this continue um, and then the movie leaves us with the comforting knowledge that everything we saw was just a scenario given by a raving lunatic in front of uh, a panel of people. Um, he does scream for a long time in that, that <laughs> <end> segment. <laughs> the entire movie was actually him screaming, we just didn't know it. Yes, uh, and that's the movie. Oh, and I forgot there's some other weird things. Like at one point, a guy is doing drugs and spies like like people start shrinking in front of him 
Uh, that seems really not plot relevant at all. Uh, um, no, that was though no, that it was uh, people are hallucinating because of the air quality. Yeah. It, it was the photographer okay. character. There and, is a uh, scene with some hippies though. There are yeah, on drugs. Like, yeah. Well, that, there was it. Um, uh, oh my god! The thing is, you mentioned so much ridiculous shit, and that you you missed about two thirds of the ridiculous shit. I only say <laughs> that because I wrote it all down. And the, well, oh yeah, it. and then we have the uh, the motorcycle suicide. Uh, oh, dude, cult. <laughs> they're <Two>. doing like flips. <laughs> yeah, they're they're like they're they're riding motorcycles off of cliffs and and like yeah, doing flips off of motorcycles off of cliffs and Don't stuff. They, like flip a coin to see who's gonna die first, though. Yes. They're, like, yeah. Even better is like right before all of this. Right before all of this, uh, there's like I forgot if it was uh, Tomba's character or if it was the prime minister. Someone says. We must work together, avoid doing anything foolish. And there's just a smash cut to hippies partying. Yeah, and then, yeah, they. I guess they're supposed to be doing this because they're environmentally conscious. But, like, yeah, they flip a coin, and whoever gets a certain side of the coin has to go kill themselves. So we see them, like, we see one one group, like, they're all face-painted, and they're on, a like, a sailboat. And then we see, oh, yeah. then we see our motorcycle guys all driving off of cliffs. Um, and I guess, I guess, I don't... I, I guess the movie is saying like, hey, if everyone kills themselves, like this would help. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know. But it also is telling us that if you go dance on the beach and stuff, everything will be fine for like a half half minute. And well, yeah, the girl, play. the the mom dies, and then the the daughter goes on the beach, and there's this like really strange memorial. Well, she she's pregnant, and she tells her boyfriend that she's pregnant. There was a whole like subplot where the father, her dad, wants. Initially says like he wants them to have a baby, and then the mother says he doesn't want them to have a baby, and then she tells her boyfriend that they're pregnant at the beach, and then she like some re- for some reason runs away from him and he chases her, and then she starts dancing, and yeah. then like the camera pans out and there's like this weird glare on the camera and it looks like the Olympics logo thing. It's, it's yeah, there's like a, like d- like a couple suns like <laughs> oh shit I, yeah yeah that happens too. There's weird yeah. Chris, what are we missing? I feel like we're missing some of that. All right, hi, let me let me scroll back up. I literally have all this written down. So uh, the first weird thing that happened, like when I when I saw this movie the first time, I was like, okay, you get the 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 all of the the all of Tamba's previous incarnations. Then over the opening title credits, like they're reading prophecies from Nostradamus, and the first weird thing that happens is that like there's a great king will be murdered at Dolls. And it shows an image of JFK, and then it says, the ignorant will mourn with a river of tears. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah, that was an odd choice. Uh, The first thing, first he yells about concern over using uh, chemical to modify the size of food. So, I guess, pre-GMO. Yeah, he's worried about GMOs also. Yeah. He charters a plane to investigate a factory pumping out pollution, and the pictures show him flying a plane about 20 feet above a factory. (laughs) <laughs> um, and the thing is kind of interesting that I'm, I'm going to talk once we get through all of this about the pollution situation in Japan. Uh, but the, uh, the factory is operating within legal limits, but children are still being poisoned. Uh, he yells about two species of birds per year that are dying, droughts and starvation in Africa, foot long slugs at the dump, uh, AF2, a preservative that he says causes irreparable cell damage that was used in food for years, uh, which is somewhat of a true story. Um, he gives a slideshow with Akihiko Hirata and uh, Hiroshi Koizumi 
about how updating Japan is, has become like a means to justify deforestation. So he yells about deforestation. He yells about dead fish washing ashore due to pollution. Uh, 473 out of 1,500 children born this year are deformed. Uh, yells about a 15 to 20% increase of cancer. Yells about hallucinations. Uh, yells about people drinking water near a zinc mine, which causes the children to develop superpowers. He yells about how to dispose of nuclear waste. He uh, recites a prophecy during the meeting when one of the other guys in the room says he's Christian and compares the state of the world to the book of Revelation. Um, what else does he yell about? Uh, there's the odd dialogue about the natives who are mutated where they say the natives are immune, but we are not. Which is just a weird, like, they're <laughs> not immune. Uh, yells about the food shortage in Japan due to 60% of their food being imported. Which, fun fact, as of 2016, is still the case. Uh, he yells about benzopyrene in the air. He yells about... Oh, where else? <laughs> I, don't, I wrote all of this down. I'm not joking. Um, he does a lot of yelling. His wife... Did we talk about his wife dying? Because she, she passes away, and that's actually one of the most depressing moments in the movie because he's like I mean he, he's holding her hand and like genuinely welling up his and then like tears stream and then she passes it's like gut wrenching and then he goes from that into yelling at the everything yeah, she Sky. probably just was tired of listening <laughs> to him <laughs> oh yeah no one else oh he yells about after the Fukushima power plant oh sequence. yeah oh there you go is, yeah Odd, yeah. Uh, after an earthquake destroys the Fukushima power plant, I think he says uh, no plant can be entirely safe from earthquakes. Mm, we've heard that actually said before. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that. I don't know why it sounds familiar. So yes, we um, do have uh, in the movie the Fukushima does melt down and explode. Uh, so the prophecies of Nostradamus predicted. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, that would end up happening in uh, March 2011. Nearly 37 years later. This is a strange film, guys. Um, but yes, uh, so this guy is pissed off about everything. I, he, he's not right. The man, this is a sick man. Um, <laughs> which is, but that's also probably why nobody listens to him because he just well, yells okay, at everybody. I, I, I but he's not wrong. <laughs> I have an important question. Though. It's all about how question. you deliver your your uh, your your point. <laughs> why why were they like? So remember you're talking about how like he was flying in the photographs were shown. Why was he being? Why was a pediatrician being spied on by like I guess government agents? No, and they come the, in and they confront him with pictures about how hey we caught you doing research at this facility. Well, well I he, think, yeah, they were like you're on, being weird. Stop it, basically. <laughs> But you then the Yakuza like, are also threatening him. <laughs> they were like, uh, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, they were. Well, they were making money on the plant. That was the thing there. But you, you think, think he that picks they up and they... drops like plot threads nonstop. So they probably heard him yelling on the plane. That's why they took pictures. Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> um, I guess the moral is if you're really concerned about something, like deliver it like a normal person. Like, don't just yell at anybody who you walk by. Uh, and, and uh, my the other thing is like nine times out of 10, this guy's like yelling about some issue. He never says like how, what we can do to like help. 
He just he says that it, like President Trump tweets. He just what, says what, that something's happening, and then it's like, okay, what do we do about it? And by the time you even can ask him that, he's probably yelling about some other thing. Um. <laughs> uh. So yeah, this movie's crazy. Like I said, um, it, there's not much of a plot. It's more just a series of set pieces of just bad things happening at, as a result of human. Uh, ignorance, human error, human, you know, mismanagement of uh, our our living spaces. Um, but it's it's a, definitely a bizarre experience. Um, I mean, how do you guys how do you guys feel about the movie its itself? I mean, is this... I surprisingly liked a lot of it. I think my besides the screaming, my biggest issue is the ending because. I would have rather them shown us what could have happened and end, ended with some sort of like either just text overlay kind of the way The Last War does. But instead we get what felt like 20 minutes of them yelling at us again over stuff we just saw and telling us that, oh, this could have ha- this could happen. I would well, rather. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a pretty toothless twist, especially to a movie. It, with yeah, it's got it just it, that's, tr- it, that's bringing up how all these things that are currently going on that are based in like real events could go wrong. And then it's like, well, well the, the, the perfect ending would be the mutants and then 2001 A Space Odyssey stars. I, I think our buddy Danny Lee Bean or somebody like brought that up. I'm like, dude, that would be great. Like just in that right there and then start 2001. We're good. <laughs> I mean, in some alternate universe, we didn't blow ourselves up, and you know, it's it. All the possibilities. I mean, it's the movie is is kind of a beautiful mess. Uh, the ending just kind of like when when Tamba finally stops yelling, and he sits down, the prime minister just starts talking, and it doesn't make things better. Uh, he basically yeah. just asks for help returning Japan to an admirable status. Uh, calling upon citizens and saying, you know, at this point, the government thought they could fix things without the trust of the citizens. And I guess the whole point of the movie is if, if you know, and then there's even post credits text, I think, after that, <laughs> I think uh, there because is they picture. didn't explain enough that this didn't happen. Uh, it's only a movie and it didn't even happen in the movie uh, that, you know, there are a lot of problems out there and you can't just trust your government to fix them because they're not going to get any better if you don't like actively try to make things better uh, because of the, the, the weird thing is Tamba, like his character kind of is yelling about a lot of stuff that's not wrong. And that a lot of it is still going on today in different capacities. So yeah, he's yelling, but you know how much were all three of us after the last election, basically this character for about six months. <laughs> <laughs> Like seriously, take 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 a step back and think. Do you remember that time? It was not fun. But we were just I like personally attacked by this relatable content. Just like you you go out to your you go out of your house, you look at your phone, you go, oh look, everything's on fire, and everybody everyone you meet, you're like, don't you understand? Everything is on fire, and then you're yelling, and next Nobody thing you know, you're listen. like, yeah, no one wants to listen. You're looking back at his stor- things that happened, you know, hundreds of years ago, and you're like, didn't nobody see this coming? But, you know, instead of citing Nostradamus, we're using facts and science. Well, that's another thing. If you're going to be this guy and, like, lecture in front of all these scientists, I mean, don't be going around. Don't be quoting Nostradamus left and right. 
Well, that's like when you're talking to somebody and they seem really level-headed and then some weird, like, strange internet alt-right conspiracy theory just, like, dribbles out. Yeah, and they're like, well, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean... I, I agree, you know, uh, climate change and global warming is a problem, you know, but I, you know, I think, um, you know, since the earth is flat, you know, like, it'd be like someone doing that and says, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it'd be great if we could, if we could really just restructure the entire government into something, the two-party system isn't working, but the ultimate problem, I think, is convincing the reptilians to go along with this. And you're like, <laughs> wait, whoa, whoa. Let's <laughs> back up a second and talk about I think we should talk about Nostradamus. I don't have much about him specifically, except, I mean, I'll give you the, the cliff notes for what I have. And if you guys know any more, please feel free to chime in. Um, so he's born in the 1500s. He actually was born into a Jewish family, but his um, his father actually converted to, Catholic, uh, to, to Catholicism. And he was, as far as anyone can tell, a practicing Catholic, although... Uh, and he became a, basically an apo- uh, apothecary. So he gave medicine to doctors. He created medicine, gave them to doctors. And at this time in, in history, a lot of people were getting killed because of the plague. And one of the things that he created was some sort of like rose pill that supposedly pr- uh, protected people against the said plague. He was married a handful of different times, had several different tragic events take some of his family members away from him. Um, but what he's famous for are these um, – Almanac. So basically, an almanac for those like it it predicts the events of the of the next year, right? The farmer's almanac, where it predicts the weather and different things. Except he started incorporating stuff like uh, horoscopes, and eventually he started doing like astrology and taking dates and trying to predict things from there. And that's how, in all of his writings, they it basically sold so well, and he and he and he did well with it that he started incorporating a lot of stuff from what we would consider occultism. But at the time, he was so worried about um, like an inquisition of some kind or being thrown out because of heresy that he actually started writing them in a mixture of different languages like Greek, Italian, Latin. And so that way people couldn't always distinguish like what he was saying. You had to actually go in and kind of decode it. So only certain people could really go through and understand what he was saying. Um, he wrote um, these stanzas. They're based – they're quatrains, and they're, they're basically – um, like they're typically consist of four lines. They're pretty short. And I think you see them, you know, stated throughout the movie. They're so generic and vague that like you could manipulate them to probably talk about anything, but there is a growing, not there's a large contingent of people that do believe that he's predicted like the assassination of JFK, atomic bombs, uh, the rise of Adolf Hitler, September 11th, or there's a group of people that look at what he wrote and they think that they do, in fact, point to events and events in history. Um, when he passed away, he actually suffered from edema, which is basically swelling. Your your body swells up really large. And when he the night before he passed away, supposedly he basically said, like, I'm going to die tomorrow. You're not going to find me alive at sunrise. And the next day, that's how they found him. So, like, there's a lot of mystery surrounding his actual death. Um but it sounds like he took most most people that have studied his work. They seem to think that he took a lot of stuff from the Bible or other ancient literature from that time period, and he, and he basically took it and kind of morphed it into other things. Um, you could take some of his writings and point to say Nero. Nero was the was the guy that sacked and destroyed Jerusalem, as an example. Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting stuff about his life, 
Um, but a lot of people follow him. Like, you know, there's a 2012, right? We had that thing where the world was going to end and they had all those movies that came out. That's all Nostradamus stuff. So, and here we are, 1970s, talking about a movie where he makes a guy scream at us for two hours. <laughs> basically, if anyone has seen Plan 9 from Outer Space or the movie Ed Wood, he's basically Criswell with a beard. That's all you need to know. And if he wrote That's, these, and yeah. he wrote thing, and 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 if you're if you're one of those kids that listen to this podcast that don't know what a floppy disk is, he wrote things that are tantamount to those weird passive aggressive like text posts people do on on social media, where like you don't you read it. Is this about me? Who, who are they talking about? And it'll be this kind of weird, vague, it's pseudo insulting like, you know, some people you have to cut out of your life. He wrote the equivalent of that, but trying to predict the future. Yeah, he wrote things that were so vague that you could almost point to, like, a ton of historical events and be like, oh, that's what he was talking about. Oh, that was he was. That, they're so vague they could almost be put on anything, <laughs> almost, if you actually were to look at them. So are there any that... Uh, do, does anyone know if this movie uses real... Prophecies of Nostradamus, or did it just make them up for for this? I think we all came up with that same question too late to research it. And That's, ultimately, I don't know how much I care about the real answer. That um, too. Because I could just as easily see them being like, okay, what's something that sounds prophetic here? Um, but uh yeah no I it's it's interesting that over centuries this guy's work is still kind of clung to as like ooh prophecies of Nostradamus are coming true um I mean I guess they're so vague that they're so universal that they can just be passed on through centuries I don't know Well yeah like the rise of a leader that gets like assassinated you could say that about any number of people <laughs> right. in history right I do have a correction actually Nero is noted as like one of the worst um, Roman leaders. He was, I mean, he was a horrible guy, but it was his son that eventually destroyed Jerusalem. Anyway, I just want to make sure that I wasn't giving that All information. Right. Well, there you go. Um, so uh, now that we've talked a little bit about Nostradamus, uh, Chris, I understand uh, the composer is the big one. We'll get into him in a minute, but I understand you also had some some items about the uh, the director. Yes. Uh, so everyone, for some reason, attributes this movie to Yoshimitsu Bono, um, I guess because he made a Godzilla movie. And well, yeah, I think I think play. it's like he wrote the screenplay and then he did the, the second unit. So I think it's it's very easy for people who are only familiar with Hedera and who have never heard of Toshio Masuda to be like, oh, okay, I, I I can project all these things from Smog Monster onto this, but but yes, yeah, he he did not direct the film. Um, that was uh, Masuda was was the director. Yeah, and uh, Masuda had, had been a director for Nikatsu throughout the fifties and sixties. Uh, he directed a number of film noir gangster films, um, which kind of was the bread and butter of of Nikatsu during that time. Um, my favorite is a movie called Velvet Hustler, uh, an alternate title is Light a Sh- Like a Shooting Star, um, uh, stars Tetsuya Watari, and it there's just an abrupt dance sequence that occurs after an abrupt bar fight that's just one of the weirdest moments in any crime film I've ever seen. Um, he made a movie called Rusty Knife, which was included in Criterion's Nikatsu Noir box set, 
which has a score by Masaru Sato. Um, he's most well known in uh, the United States for sharing directing duties of the Japanese segments with uh, of uh, Tora 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 with uh, Kinji Fukusaku after Kurosawa, you know, left the film or was fired, depending on who you ask. Uh, but something that's kind of unusual was in the 1970s, as well as being a director, he also worked as a cinematographer for Toei, uh, shooting a variety of crime, action, and exploitation films for directors like Norifumi Suzuki, Takashi Harada, and Sadao Nakajima. Um, it was just a few of them, just uh, for the record. Uh, Tokyo Soul Bangkok, so- starring Sonny Chiba. Hiroki Matsukata and Bunta Sugawara, which is like an action crime film. Jeans Blues, No Future, which is a very not great film starring the great Meiko Kaji. Uh, Girl Boss Revenge, Skeban, which is a Reiko Ike and Miki Sugimoto uh, pinky violence movie with a really funky soundtrack. And Twisted Sex, a potentially less than politically correct documentary on underground gay and trans life, sex change operations, tattoos, S&M, and these uh, violent stage show S&M acts. Uh, he was also the supervising director on the anime series Space Battleship Yamato, as well as the director of several of the Space Battleship Yamato films in the late 70s and into the 80s. So he kind of became known as like a blockbuster filmmaker, but he's one of those like rare instances of somebody working for pretty much almost all of the major studios, which is strange, and also being a, a well-known director, but also working as a cameraman. It's just a strange, <laughs> like, you don't hear that at all. It's that a very is odd, odd yeah. Yeah. Um, there's not much known about him in the United States, and that's just one of those, he's one of those guys that he, he never had a hit that translated over here, and Tora 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 being like a mishmash of different things and co-directing it with another uh, well-known director, just an, a completely unknown guy. And I think this is one of those movies that if it had a release would probably be a cult movie. Mm-hmm. It just has all the ingredients. Um, so yeah, that's, that's uh, some stuff I was able to dig, dig up on him. There's not a whole lot in English, unfortunately. Okay. Um, my might be my favorite thing about the movie that we haven't mentioned is the score. Um, and I know the three of us have all kind of uh, praised the score, but you in particular have some items on the composer and, and, and the music and whatnot. So why don't you uh, continue your hot streak? Have at it. Yes, I'm, I'm here for, for, for the talking. Um, so uh, the composer is Isao Tomita, um, he became a full-time composer in 1955, creating the theme song for the Japanese gymnastics team for the 1956 Summer Olympics. He went on to compose a theme song for Osamu Tezuka's Jungle Emperor, known in the United States as Kimba, the White Lion, and most known as the movie that Disney ripped off well, to yeah, make The Lion the, the, King. The quote-unquote inspiration for Lion King, yeah. Yeah, all of the all of the coincidences that go into that are kind of hilarious, which is its own that's Wikipedia it's, it's insane, rabbit hole. But yeah, that's its own that's its own yeah. uh, can of worms. I fell down that rabbit hole several years ago. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Uh, so he also collaborated with um, the composer Kunio Miyauchi, who uh, worked on Ultraman, Ultra Q, and Godzilla's Revenge, to create uh, music for the Subaraya series Mighty Jack. Uh, and most known in the West, two of the episodes of Muddy Jack were subsequently cut together by 
infamous uh, movie terrorist Sandy Frank and subsequently riffed on by Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, yeah, he's a terrible <laughs> crimes against <laughs> cinema, but, you know. Um, after, uh, so it's, we jump forward to uh, early 1970s. I, I don't remember the year this was released, but uh, Wendy Carlos uh, released an album called Switched on Bach, which introduced the world to the potential of the synthesizer as an instrument, specifically in the world of classical music and performance. Um, and Tommy just switched gears to creating electronic music. During this time, he pushed the limits of spatial mixing, multi-track recording, vocal synthesis, and various sound processing effects. Uh, he released a number of albums of pretty groundbreaking performances of classical pieces from all the way from Debussy to Igor Stravinsky to Gustav Holst's The Planets. Um, his recording of The Planets caught the attention of Francis Ford Coppola, who reached out to him to create the original score for Apocalypse Now. Uh, allegedly, Tamita even went to the Philippines during production of Apocalypse Now, but his record label contract prevented him from scoring the film. Um, one of those kind of cool almost of film history, and uh, apparently after that, uh, Coppola wa- basically decided to have the score emulate uh, his uh, Tomita's rendition of The Planets. Uh, he also composed music for the Zatoichi television series, two Zatoichi films, uh, Kenji Fukusaku's version of Black Lizard, one of the Hanzo the Razor films, and the Tsuburaya anthology horror series, Unbalance, which remains completely unreleased outside of Japan. Uh, I, Out of like all of the tokusatsu, whatever, this has got to be one of the things I've wanted to see the most, is this series like an anthology horror series by Tsuburaya episode directed by Seiji and Suzuki, just like a lot of really cool people working on one project that somehow never made it here. Uh, two of his well-known later film scores are for Yoji Yamada's the twilight samurai and the hidden blade. Uh, the former of which won the Japanese Academy award that year for outstanding achievement in music. Additionally, he performed a synthesizer version of Debussy's Claire de Lune for the Ocean's 13 soundtrack. Uh, that is the piece of music that misled us all into believing King of the Monsters would be a good movie. Um, <laughs> not, his, not his version of it, but that piece of music. Uh, oh, and in 2012, he performed in Tokyo, directing the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra Choir and featuring famed Vocaloid simulated recording artist Hatsune Miku. Uh, in 2016, he passed away from heart failure after years of heart-related issues. Uh, but he really had this pretty, like, pretty crazy span of work, starting from the 50s all the way up to the end of his life, uh, and just worked in such a huge variety of mediums. And this is a pretty cool score because he kind of gets to have one hand in synthesized music and one in orchestral music, but then also, you know, pop and funk music of the time well yeah there's a a lot of different uh i guess like flavors going into this this soundtrack yeah i mean the opening theme uh i i got obsessed with when i first heard it and recorded a cover of it like probably over 10 years ago at this point um it's just a really cool interesting memorable thing uh you know the the whistly synths do kind of feel a little silly at some of the point some points in the movie but I just feel like it just it it tie it's the kind of glue that holds a lot of these weird sequences and elements together, and these weird choirs that you're not quite sure if they're synthesized or not, like add to the otherworldliness of it. Um, I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting piece of music, and 
the score is pretty was released on vinyl and CD, uh, which is and kind of odd because it's you know a movie that's banned, but <laughs> right, it has yeah. enough of a following. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, speaking of the banning, I guess we should talk about what that's all about. So. Um, the movie was a huge hit when it came out in Japan, um, and not like, I mean, it, it became the highest grossing movie of 1974 over there, um, but, um, it, that really didn't last, because not soon after its release, um, the, there were a lot of protests by, uh, two groups, the No Nukes group and the Bomb Sufferers Organizations Council, um, rabidly protested this film, um, mostly due to the mutants at the end, um, and, you know, found it offensive to people who have survived, um, uh, the atomic bombs. Um, Toho pulled the movie from, uh, theatrical release, uh, they chopped it down to 90 minutes, um, and retitled it as Catastrophe 1999, and they removed some of that problematic material, including the mutants and uh, also the character screaming about his um, his deformed uh, grandchild. Um, and then Toho would also dub that over as their international version. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, the the movie since has been under a self imposed ban, um, similar to Half Human. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for years, I just figured I would never see either of those. But like I said earlier, some point in the mid-2000s, uh, some sneaky little bastard, uh, <laughs> snuck out, like, a uh, you know, some, un- some, I guess, version that was shelved, and, um, at, at the studio, and, uh, eventually it made its way into the bootleg circuit, and eventually it was subtitled, and, um, now it is, along with Half Human, they're not too hard to find, uh, on the bootleg circuit. Um, interestingly, those were also the same groups that got Ultra 7 Episode 12, uh, banned as well, for similar reasons, um, the interesting thing about, uh, I mean, self-imposed studio bands, whether it's Half Human or Prophecies of Nostradamus or, you know, Disney with the Song of the South is the most famous example, um, is that they are studio-imposed. Um, I don't know. I'm of the opinion that, yes, this material is problematic. I understand why it's offensive, but I think... I, I think that it should also be allowed to be seen. You know, I'm not a big proponent of a studio basically locking away uh, a film. I mean, I you know, there were jokes about, oh, Disney Plus is going to have everything. Is it going to have Song of the South? Ha, ha, ha. And, like, part of me feels like eh, maybe it should. Um, for instance, like, uh, I think Dumbo is an example. I mean, Dumbo has some pretty offensive racist stereotypes and and if you i i believe dumbo is one of the examples if you go on disney plus there's a disclaimer that says you know this this film reflects some problematic stereotypes of the time it is not reflective of our values as a as a studio or or whatever same with like um warner brothers when they release like uh the, i think it took a while for them to actually do it but like the speedy gonzalez cartoons like same thing oh, yeah. 
just like for historical purposes, I, I think that all this kind of stuff should be able to be, be viewed. Put it out there with a disclaimer, and you'll be fine. You know, I I don't know. I don't I don't I don't agree with them having this movie just sitting there. What's interesting about the ban on this is the groups that protested weren't even survivors, from what I understand. Of Hiroshima I've heard and that Hatsaki. too. Um, for this episode, I really didn't look into it much. Um, but but I've heard that too. I, I I think I I know I heard heard that in in um, in reference to the the Ultra Seven episode. So yeah, I, I would assume that at least a, po- a a portion of the commotion might even yeah be from just people that are. Uh, I mean, Offended I did buy things. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I personally hate the term social justice warrior SJW. Because, like, I I think social justice is a good thing, and I don't like that as a derogatory term. But I guess, I guess it's kind of the equivalent of what people would negatively associate with with that term. Yeah, and I think what what's interesting is given the context of this coming out in 1974, like. I mean, this is offensive, but then all of the pinky violence films are not offensive. Granted, Toho didn't partake of that particular genre as much, uh, but like Roman porno films, uh, these extremely violent Yakuza films, like I just all of this, the despicable characters and and uh, reprehensible situations and violence and whatever is not offensive, but this is. Right, yeah. It's not even like bringing... It's not even like trying to make it like make light of it either. It's it's just putting it out there for people to see and in a way that can inf- maybe even inform them some. So like I don't I don't really understand. Well, I I, th- I can see it being banned throughout the 70s, the 80s, maybe even the 90s, but like it's 2020. You know, at what point are you just going to say like okay, we know that we made this movie, we know that some of this is problematic. But like here, but like you, it's, we're so far removed from from the controversy. I think you can put it out with a disclaimer on it, and for the people that want to see it, they can check it out. I mean, do yeah, all twelve of us? Yeah, right. Um, from what I understand, they've they've kind of gotten even more squeamish in recent years with like, you know, you get like the Tokusatsu books and stuff, and that cover like all of Toho's you know, special effects films. Like I, I heard it's like not even included in some of the more recent um, books and things like that, because like they are so like, they're, they're still not very comfortable with it. Interesting. Did we, um, uh, Chris, were you going to talk about some of the other environmental concerns of the seventies? I don't think we got to those things. Oh yeah. I mean, I've got so, um, Something that's kind of I, I did a little bit of a dive because there's so many like weird specifics that Tombo's character yells about uh, throughout the film. I just like looked into some of what he was yelling about. Um, so something to to note um, in the 1960s in Japan, the emissions of nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, and sulfur dioxide tripled, and Japan started to become known for pollution related illnesses, uh, some of which are yokaichi asthma. Minamata disease, and they were both named after the cities where they first appeared, uh, and cadmium poisoning, which was known as itai itai, or ouch ouch. Um, the most famous of these is Minamata disease, 
which is a uh, 1950s industrial disaster that caused uh, tens of thousands of people to be poisoned by wastewater from a chemical plant that contaminated uh, Minamata Bay. The wastewater was contaminated by mercury, which can lead to severe damage to the brain and nervous system. Fish became contaminated. Locals and other wildlife ate the fish. Local fishermen rioted in 1959, forcing the government to investigate the causes of illness and death. Uh, and it wasn't until 1968 that officials admitted the cause of the contamination was mercury dumping into the bay. Uh, in, in 1970, there is uh, the, what's known as the Pollution Diet of 1970. Uh, Fourteen anti-pollution laws were passed at once, uh, many of which were not in full compliance through the 1990s, uh, which does tie into uh, what, what Tamba yells about, how this factory is operating within official, uh, whatever it's official capacity, the allowance of pollution or whatever, but people are still being poisoned. Um, some of the other things that were mentioned specifically in Prophecies, prophecies of Nostradamus, uh, concern over using a chemical to modify the size of food, he mentioned GMOs, um, he mentions AF2, uh, a preservative that he says caused irreparable cell damage, which was on the market for years before being removed. Uh, the true story of AF2, uh, which is also known as, and I will butcher this as much as you guys butcher every single Japanese name, um, <laughs> furylfuramide? Furylfuramide? I don't know. Uh, it was a synthetic compound that was used as a food preservative in Japan from around 1965 and removed from the market around 1974. It was proved to be mutagenic to bacteria in test tube experiments and suspected of being carcinogens. Uh, it was later confirmed with animal testing to cause both benign and malignant tumors in rodents of both sexes. And according to the World Health Organization in 1998, there was insufficient evidence that it would affect humans. Um, uh, even though this particular additive had the details fudged in service of the plot of the film, there's uh, still an incredible amount of different preservatives, chemicals, and oils that are present in our food and that are extraordinarily terrible for you when consumed regularly over a period of time. Uh, for example, any oils that are hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated have been designated as no longer uh, generally recognized as safe in 2015 due to studies that removing them from processed foods would, and I quote, prevent thousands of heart attacks and deaths each year. Uh, and companies started to use hydrogenated oils to extend shelf life and, of course, cut down on cost. Uh, June 18, 2018 was the date after which manufacturers can no longer add these to foods, with the extended compliance date being January 1st, 2020, which also ties into, you know, the fact that there's even a, a quote in the movie, uh, we, you know, people in Japan don't even know what goes into their food. You know, this, this concern that Tamba's yelling about is still very real today. Uh, the slideshow in which uh, Akihiko Hirata, Hiroshi Koizumi get their single paycheck of the 1970s um, and uh, Tamba give, where they talk about how updating Japan has been a means to justify deforestation, has actually been a criticism of, of modern Japanese building over the last century. Um, you know, using the, the, the excuse, so we need to, we're updating things, we're making things better, we're modernizing things, using it as an excuse to demolish, you know, forests, what have you. And even to the point of where, you know, Tokyo, parts of uh, Tokyo being demolished to make way for the 2020 Olympics, you know, up to, we're updating things. Um, 
Uh, he One other thing he yells about is how to dispose of nuclear waste. We still don't know how. We have no answer. <laughs> 1974. That's so true, by the way. Yeah, we have no so idea. True. Well, they're getting ready to uh, dump a bunch of radioactive water into the ocean from uh, Fukushima. So everything's still, you know, still the same. Yes, yeah, that's even that's that's even one of the lesser amounts of nuclear waste that we have to get rid of, uh, which is terrifying. Um, I mentioned before the food shortage in Japan and the movie is due to Japan uh, importing 60 percent of their food, which is in 2016 still the case. Uh, Tamba's wife, um, whose single character attribute is that she's dying. Um, uh, he he blames benzopyrene in the air. Uh, benzopyrene is a type of hydrocarbon that's a result of combustion of organic matter at temperature at high temperatures. Um, it's found in coal tar, tobacco smoke, and grilled meat, uh, which, you know, blaming the factories in the area around him for that. Uh, Fukushima, no plant can be entirely safe from earthquakes. Um, I mean, it, it, this movie touches on a lot of oddly specific things that he's yelling about, and I, you know, I guess I can't blame him because we still haven't <laughs> figured any of this out, and it's 2020. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know it's not exactly the same, but like we have places in the U.S. like Flint, Michigan, where you can't even get friggin' drinking water. Hey, I'm Gosh, within yeah. an hour yeah. of there. <sighs> You'll be fine. Just <laughs> that explains a lot of birds' behavior. If I'm <laughs> yeah, just go when you start when you're able to do math faster than a supercomputer or jump. Impossibly high. <laughs> Jump over buildings. Yeah. Also, I but should that, mention that uh, not too far from me, there off of one of our highways, there is green ooze leaking off from uh, from the side of the of the of the road, and nobody knows what it is or where it's coming from, but it's getting people like sick. So yeah. uh, I'm about to live in <laughs> Tromaville. Um, oh, Jesus. Which, <laughs> by the way. Romaville was Jersey City. Uh, that's where Toxic <laughs> Avenger was filmed. So all of 15 minutes from where I live. Um, yeah, we'll be fine. Um, I just saw a uh, – the Cincinnati Inquirer just posted an article recently, like in the past hour, that says something about uh, contaminated water that had been, that's from, uh, from dumping chemicals. And then the, there's a quote that says – there's nothing to worry about, except then it also says linked to cancer. So this is – it's cool. Like, the, you know. Yeah, everything's cool. going to be great. Um, right. So uh, I have a couple bits here. Um, so uh, Toho had uh, also planned to do a television adaptation, which they had done with uh, uh, Submersion of Japan, um, with a pilot being written and very close to – uh, shooting. I, I've I've heard that they they may have actually shot some kind of B roll stuff for it, although I not that has not been verified. Um, and then I guess we should also talk. I mean, we also we mentioned the ninety minute international version, but here um, uh, in uh, well, I should mention the last time the uncut version was shown legally was on Japanese TV in 1980. Um, now, in 1981, Henry Saperstein, you know, Toho's uh, American producer partner, uh, uh, had gotten the rights, and he released it uh, to American TV as Last Days of Planet Earth, which was a heavily edited version, um, cut it down to less than 90 minutes, um, 
And uh, it did, throughout the 90s, it, it, it did receive some cable play uh, on TNT late at night, uh, back when TNT uh, did cool things in the middle of the night. Um, in 1995, Paramount uh, put it out as part of their Godzilla VHS line, which included um, several Showa movies, uh, King of the Monsters, Godzilla's Revenge, I believe, Monster Zero, um, I think Terror of Mechagodzilla, a lot of the movies that classic media ended up with, um, as well as Rodan, War of the Gargantuas. Um, so that VHS, uh, some people listening might have had that. Um, that's the only official release this ever had here in the States. Um, uh, I, this is, like The Last War, I just never watched. I, I, when I was younger, I never caught it on cable, um, never picked up the tape, <clears throat> So once Good I had news, you, you can pick up the tape for a, a slim fifty nine dollars on Amazon. <laughs> um, and yeah, like the last war, it's one of those where I just hear it's a horribly cut up, inferior version of of the movie I already have. So I never really felt like watching it. But some things I I can tell you are, um, it was really just cut up and presented as an even more random sequence of events than. Uh, the the version the uncut version, um, it relied on heavy narration. Um, in in at the beginning when it, sh- it has a uh, Tamba's relative or his ancestor, the the movie actually says that it's Nostradamus. So anyone in the states that's seen this movie probably thinks the movie thinks that Nostradamus was like an old Japanese guy. Um, but yeah, that's the only uh, version that's been released. Um, here uh the 90-minute international version is still screened every now and then in japan from what i understand and uh was planned for a vhs release at one point which didn't happen uh we mentioned toho has uh released the soundtrack album uh weirdly enough they also uh released what's called a drama cd which is just the audio of the movie um what and uh (laughs) That the and the drama CD actually has uh, art by Shinji Higuchi in it. I guess this is a movie that he, um, I guess he's a big fan of it. Um, interesting, uh, fun trivia bits: the radiation suits worn in the New Guinea scenes are the same suits worn by the ape aliens in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, and the helmets are from the SY3 crew in Destroy All Monsters. Um, I mentioned the television series that got canned, probably due to the controversy. Um, while the movie was making money and not quite uh, being uh, driving people crazy and protesting, uh, there was a sequel that uh, I guess Tanaka had uh, was kind of himself was kind of working out a story treatment. Um, but uh, all this, there's uh, about 14 pages worth of story treatment that was completed for a sequel. So I don't even know that even the treatment got finished. But the gist of it was it was to follow a reporter named Satomu Goto, uh, named after the author of the, the original novel, uh, who was investigating the use of spiritual mediums trying to contact Nostradamus about his predictions for the end of the world. Um, like this movie, meanwhile, all hell is breaking loose across the world. Battles are bre- breaking out in land, sea, air, and even outer space. Um, and at the end, uh, the King of Terror uh, that Nostradamus mentions in one of his prophecies descends from uh, Japan, or onto Japan, and it's a UFO that takes the Japanese people to space to begin a new future as the rest of the world completely collapses in on itself and burns. <laughs> <laughs> now uh 
<laughs> it is said that this is because Japan, how about it, Japan remained the only nation to remain 100% neutral in all of the ensuing <laughs> conflicts. <laughs> um, Fuck. The, <laughs> the screenwriter Masato Ide, uh, who wrote some Kurosawa stuff like Redbeard, was hired to uh, write to to flesh it out into a full screenplay, but with the project being abandoned 14 pages into its own story treatment, that just never happened. Uh, again, likely canned due to the controversy around the original movie. Um, but then uh, Gato or Goto, uh, I'm horrible with this. Um, he would eventually release a sequel to his original novel in 1995, titled "Prophecies of Nostradamus: The Middle East Chapter." Uh, I have no idea what that is or could be about. Um, I'm sure it's not racist. Well, yeah, I was about to say, I, I'm not sure. How, uh, it sounds like it could potentially <laughs> be uh, problematic. Um, so, yeah, that's the insane sequel we could have had, had the movie not been banned. Uh the idea of Japan being the only nation worth saving uh, might have caused its own controversy. <laughs> it definitely wouldn't have made it right. It definitely wouldn't have, wouldn't have made it very uh, uh, marketable outside of Japan. Uh, so, uh, so basically, everything about this movie, uh, its past, um, its current status, its planned future, is all incredibly strange. Even by like seventies Toho standards. Even by just seventies film standards. This is like if anyone's ever seen The Visitor, <laughs> it's like one of those oddities where you're just like a movie beamed over here from another planet. Right, yeah. <laughs> like there's really no characters other than Tetsuro Tamba, who like I said, if you if you are of sound mind after the last election, you were basically this character for six months. So if you just imagine that as the protagonist of a, of a two-hour movie where everything in the world goes wrong, uh, you know, that's kind of it. And then every other character is, yeah, screaming into the void, but then we also are the believing. Void, though. That's the thing. That's, that's uh, what's happening. Yeah, but then also believing in the prophecies of an old crazy man uh, and also having every other character in the in the movie be completely disposable and pointless his wife's sole purpose is to be sick and die. His daughter's sole purpose is to be pregnant. His daughter's uh, boyfriend, fiance's sole purpose is to just have an excuse to have a guy there on in a scene. Oh, he has a camera. He's, he's there during the rioting. Oh, he has a camera. Let's bring him to New Guinea. Oh, he has a camera. He goes here. Just... <laughs> That's not wrong. <laughs> no, it's it's pathetic. And like I said, when you when you compare it to the how strong uh, you know Hoshi's character in the Last War is, and it's just like th this is what this is what happened in in less than fifteen years' time. I think it speaks volumes about a the the film going attendance for this, and just also like I don't know who uh, whoever whatever. Uh, was behind the story of this or whoever's behind the screenplay, <laughs> what they were thinking about. Like, it's just like, they're talking about birth defects and there is not one female character on this saying anything <laughs> about this. And it's just like... Yeah, is... you're right. The grandfather is the one who laments that. And the one daughter says something to the effect of like, well, women's role in life is to birth kids and raise them no matter how hard it is. Yeah. <laughs> <Like that's... laughs> 
And you think this the, is uh, just uh, this is a very there's some problematic stuff here. Well, the year before you had a sinking of Japan where the guy like basically forces the girlfriend into marriage because he's like, you need to carry my spawn. (laughs) 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 It's like for every for every stupid, like just complete nonsensical thing there is in here. There are like if you pulled certain quotes out of this movie and just threw them into any of our current issues, you're like, eh. Like, uh, it's not enough to pray to God. I have to send a report to the Minister of Environment. We have to come up with a workable solution to our present crisis. Yeah, one like, one prayer, man. That's how yeah. that works. Yeah, let's see. Uh, what, would you, what would you do to solve all this? I would speak to them honestly. Let them know that in order to survive, they'll have to put up with uh, all manner of discomforts. We'll close down all of the factories, save those that are essential. <laughs> In summary, the world's agricultural products, amounting to 1,200,000,000 tons a year, are reduced to 700 million tons thanks to the luxury diets of the developed nations. Uh, so, uh, how many um, Tetsuro Tamba yells at Cloud uh, do you give this out of five? Matt, you're going first. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I'm actually at a, a three and a half. Like, I find it, I find the majority of the movie absurdly and wildly entertaining. It's got some issues, as we've laid out, especially for me, the end. But like, it's it's worth watching. There's like so much stuff happening. It's it's just a fever dream, and it's it's entertaining. Uh, Plus I'm gonna, the soundtrack rules. Well, yeah, no, the score is great. Uh, I'm gonna do a three. Um the yeah no the score is great i like some of the more outrageous things like uh mutants and cannibals and stuff like that uh so much of the movie is just this guy yelling and not telling us what we can do about anything uh he he's kind of like that homer simpson quote of where he says uh Anyone can just make up a statistic. A hundred percent of people know that. Like that's that, that's kind of <laughs> like he just says statistics without really references or saying what we can do about them. And I I I, I know we've all been this character before, but I I I, I hate him. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's no disrespect to Tetsuro Tamba. I, he, in my opinion, he's one of the greatest Japanese actors. Uh, ever, I mean, uh, so so many iconic roles, so many great roles. Uh, he's he's one of the greatest. He's like what Japan, like what how how someone here would think of someone like you know Al Pacino. Like he's he's one of the greats, but uh, he's he's in no, incredibly irritating in this. Um, and the movie itself just has a very stunted kind of flow to it. Um, but uh I mean the things that I like about it I like a lot. Um it's basically like a exploitation movie version of a disaster film. Um but it is also kind of a mess and it's not the kind of thing that I would also like revisit often or anything like that. So I'm coming down at a 3 uh a respectful 3 but a 3 nonetheless. I'm I'm again right agreeing with both of you guys. It you know, the latitude of what I'm going to rate this depends on the day. Um, before today would have been a three point five. Uh, <laughs> the ending does suck. I 
but it, what's worse, though, the actual ending or the fact that they hold on Tetsuro Tamba's smug grin at the end when the prime minister tells him that he's right? <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the camera just holds on him for, like, a solid 30 seconds of him just going, just smiling and just this grin of, like, yes, they've all listened to me. All of this yelling was worth it. Uh, I, you know, I'd say that I've seen this movie now three times. Um the first two times a 3.5 today after watching the last war by comparison, it's like definitely a three, but catch me in a good mood. It would be a 3.5 just on the sheer audacity of like, like cramming all of this stuff into one movie and all of these like really unique visual ideas. Uh, it's just has no characters, but, but Tomba yells at cloud. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I guess I'll close this podcast uh, with this sobering reminder that is uh, from 1961. Uh, it's a very long time ago. Um, so The Last War's international ad campaign came with a statement by M. Shimizu, the president of Toho, uh, and it reads as follows. The time has come to make this picture. Newspapers, radio commentators, scholars, common men all speak of a dread hovering ominously over the entire world every second of every day. If we repeat, if this dread should descend upon us, it will result in the destruction of mankind and perhaps life itself. Men of intelligence are taking great pains to avert it. This is indeed commendable. There can never be too much effort exercised toward this end. But still, we live in fear of that. Live in fear that a great war, the last war, may come. We, the Japanese, are in a better position than people of any other nation to make a film such as this. We side with no one. We are inimical inimical to no one. Um, the last war is presented as our appeal to the world. We of Toho, the Toho Company, are employing every vis- vestige of our technical skill to represent as realistically and appealingly as possible exactly what will happen if this colossal horror befalls us. It is our sincere hope that by producing and exhibiting this film, we can serve the cause of peace. Um, uh, 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 uh admirable um request uh but it didn't work so uh doomsday clock is very close to midnight i mean it would help if anybody saw this movie (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that would work at this point no no too far it wouldn't i yeah i mean the idea that 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 uh mainstream art can can do anything at this point is just like come on (laughs) <laughs> no one cares alright um, so I think that wraps us uh, anyone have anything else it would be uh, nice if go, watch, go watch Threads these movies. Yes. go watch Threads and feel better Threads well, yeah, the day yeah. after I mean there's there's, there's a laundry list of these nuclear disaster movies that uh, if you like these watch watch I mean just google it there's Thinking of Tom right now because he like marathon like all of these in a matter of what felt like a week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Tom. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, I guess that's all we have. Um, uh, We we hope the apocalypse will be further delayed and we can all enjoy 
uh, a life full of full of fun things, but you never know. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.